We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! Hi, moms. Joe here. Today, as promised, we're talking... She doesn't know she's working for free. We're also talking... Baby, if you apologize again, I'm going to have to slap the sorry out of you. And we're talking, couldn't fill a Caesar salad with those breadcrumbs. And as I said, I'm Joe. Hi, moms. I'm Trace. And we're talking brotherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone should know I left that for Trace because I knew he would want it so badly. (laughs) Everyone, we are discussing Paul Feig's A Simple Favor, the second entry in our erotic horror month. Of course, we started with Dress to Kill last week. And, uh, Joe, this is an interesting pick for us, I think, because it doesn't fall squarely into the horror genre. But, I mean, there's some dark shit in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is an erotic thriller through and through to me, in part because... All of these characters are using their sexuality to get what they want from each other. And it's very clearly steeped in film noir etiquette. Oh, yeah. Paul Feig even says uh, this is suburban noir. That's why it's also bright and colorful. Right. I do love the color scheme in this film. It's so pretty. But okay, but before we get too much into this, because in case y'all can't tell, both Joe and I really like this movie. Um, <laughs> let's bring in our guest who's waiting in the wings. Everyone, she is the co-host and programmer of We Really Like Her, a podcast and a Toronto-based screening series that celebrates women who make and star in movies. You may have also read her work that also has a good focus on the fashion of horror and such websites as Dread Central. Please welcome Emily Gagne. Hello, Hello. everyone. Hi, moms. I don't know what that mom thing is, but I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's our vlog. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. No, no. I I love it. Uh, I love moms. um, And I love how this movie loves moms as well and really puts a twist on the mom sort of like mommy needs a drink. Mm hmm. They yes. take it to a to a different place that I very much enjoyed. Well, so I'm curious. So did you see this in theaters, Emily? I actually didn't, which is shocking because I am a Paul Feig fan, have been forever. Like Freaks and Geeks is one of my absolute favorite shows. I am mm-hmm. currently rewatching it again. Nice. But I, I don't know. I sort of missed it. But then I knew all of these cool bisexual ladies that were like obsessed <laughs> with this movie and lesbian ladies uh, that were obsessed with this movie. And I was like, I, I guess I got to see it. So I finally watched it at home. And I, I will say... I was a little underwhelmed the first time that I saw it because there was so much hype. Right. But when I rewatched mm-hmm. it again for this, I was like, oh, I'm really getting it now. I'm really, I'm really, really getting it. 
I think so. So I did see this in theaters and I was like, okay, it's an R-rated movie. It's Paul Feig. It's Blake Lively, Anna Kendrick. Okay, I'm in. But I I was expecting it to be a bit more fun and frilly because I I couldn't quite nail the tone in the mm-hmm. marketing, although it was yeah. definitely emphasizing a lot of the humor with the mystery aspect. Right. But the second incest gets brought into this movie, I, mm-hmm. I just remember the theater just sitting there and being like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> it is and wild. That's, that's early on in the movie. It's yeah, not it like, is. A, like a later twist. It's like, oh, this is the start of their friendship is brother fucker. Like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and Blake Lively is out of this movie for a large chunk at the 40 minute mark. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't see this in theaters, but like you, Emily, I had a bunch of people who told me, oh, you should definitely check it out. It's in your wheelhouse. And when I when I saw it, I was also underwhelmed. And I think part of it is that it's really hard on a first time watch to recover from the loss of Blake Lively's energy and mm-hmm. the way she interacts with Anna Kendrick. Mm-hmm. I think that's it, right, though, because I think when people talk about this movie, they do typically talk about the Blake Lively factor of this. Mm-hmm. And when, in fact, this is, while it's a co-lead film, like, it very much is Anna Kendrick's film. She is the yes. protagonist of this film, and she gets the biggest journey out of all these characters. Yeah. 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 I think part of the other issue is that if you're not the biggest Anna Kendrick fan, this movie is probably not going to change your mind because this is a very Anna Kendrick role, even though I would say she's playing it exactly the way she needs to. And it is exceptionally well cast for that reason. But it's tough when you're competing with somebody like Blake Lively, who people underestimate because she's just that actress from Gossip Girl. And then she comes in and blows the fucking roof off. I know so many people that don't like Blake Lively, and I am so perplexed by that. So I always recommend this movie to them, and I'm like, look, if you don't like it, like watch watch this, and mm-hmm. maybe The Shallows I'll also recommend. But, but yeah. I will say, I think she's the best part of that first Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants movie. I love oh. Sister of the Traveling mm. Pants. Big fan, have screened the first film <laughs> as part of our series. Seen them both, read all the books. like <laughs> Right? No, I'm waiting. When are they making the next movie? I'm waiting Dude. for it. Okay, I, I'm sorry. Really, but they're quick, also so, old. <laughs> I, well, I didn't. So they they made a they wrote a fifth book. They the woman who wrote it wrote a fifth book. Like I want to say five years ago, in which she kills off the Amber Tamblyn character. But it's like they're yeah. adults, you know. And there was a rumor they were going to adapt it, but it never came to fruition. So I don't. Huh. I don't know. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. But yes, uh, Blake Lively's great as Bridget. She is like heartbreaking in that Mm -hmm. first film. Mm -hmm. And that's like where I knew her from. Like, I'm not the Gossip Girl fan. Like, I like Gossip Girl, but I was never, you know, that's not my my brand. You know, as I said, I'm a Freaks and Geeks fan. I like the like outsider kind of shows. (laughs) But I think she's so, so good in Sister of the Traveling Pants. And like, I feel like the twin scenario, the like darker twin, mm-hmm. the darker storyline with the twin, kind of I was like, that's like the dark twist mm-hmm. for Bridget. Like imagine Bridget went down the wrong Yes. Ooh. Oh my God. Yes. A hundred percent. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about them and how this kind of got me. I don't have a ton of production on this because a lot of what I have is about just like their ideas when making the film. So it'll be a lot of stuff during plot. But I will say mm-hmm. everyone, if you do not have the Blu-ray of this film, um, for a film that came out Five years ago, it is stacked with extra features. There are three motherfucking, I'm sorry, three brotherfucking commentaries on this Blu-ray. <laughs> and um, how many sister killing commentaries? I ever? Very few sister killing. <laughs> oh, bummer. Okay. But no, it, like, there's a whole costume featurette. There's a production design featurette. There's a, a director's journal where they go through like day by day shooting. And so you see the order they shoot scenes. And it is Ooh. wild. Like it's really, really good. 
Nice. And it really endears you to Paul Feig, too, because he's just a really, really lovely to hear, even if he is, like, more energetic than a kid who's been given five cups of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Such a sweetie. He's just, like, a dork, like a total dork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the dorky things I love about him, which plays into the fashion, is, like, he wears a suit on set all the time. Every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And apparently, he was the inspiration for the suits that Blake Lively wears as oh, really? Emily in this film. Like, they were like, we're going to dress him, dress her like Paul, which I like, you're like, what? <laughs> well, the studio, the studio was like, no, you can't do that. That's not going to be sexy. And, Bra- and Blake Lively was pushing for it. She was like, no, just just wait. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just it's let sexy. us try it. <laughs> it's, they should have trusted. But yeah, I just I just love that like Paul Fig and uh Blake Lively are like in suits on set. Just so cute. Just just adorable. I Aww. will say though, one of my favorite things about Paul B and his films is that he is I'm not gonna say he's the best man if you're like to, to work with if you're an actress, but like he loves women and he mm. writes and like makes films that are so funny. I mean, even The Heat, which I think is probably like the film that well, maybe Ghostbusters people like the least, but like I think right. they all are just like so funny. I mean, they're all like two hour comedies, but <laughs> but they're this also funny with like Spy and Bridesmaids being like top of the heat for me. Yeah. Yeah, those are yeah. the best. Bridesmaids, I like I know it is so popular, but I like I still love it and I I love the ending of Bridesmaids so much. I think about it all the time, how there's like a goodbye to your friend as opposed mm-hmm. to like a goodbye to the love interest. And like, yes. you don't see that enough. And in Spy, there's some great friend moments. I love oh, yeah. that there's like a beach's watch mm-hmm. in that <laughs> movie. <laughs> you know, like just these little touches of friendship that are yeah. so, are just so amazing. And I I know he's a man, but I allow it. I allow it yeah. with him because I feel like he gets it. I don't know what it is, you know? Well, I think he grew up with a lot of sisters. Like, I feel like I I heard him say that so he just grew up yes. around women in a very female dominated environment and i think that mm, you, you can that see helps. that in his work yeah i would argue that this film has a stronger emphasis on female friendships and you're right emily also it's both lampooning but also celebrating mom culture in a variety of facets and like that is so inherent i mean i don't want to say oh well dads don't parent or you know like i don't want to get into too gendered semantics of it Mm -hmm. but this film is definitely celebrating its female identifying characters in ways that like henry golding is here as eye candy and he's a fucking idiot and i love that (laughs) yeah yeah well, totally. it, it was only his second film, too. Uh, whenever they were recording the commentary for this, he's not there because he was in the middle of, like, the premiere of Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, wow. Okay. But, um, okay, so in January 2016, it was announced that 20th Century Fox had bought the film rights to author Darcy Bell's novel, A Simple Favor, for the book's publication. And it was pitched as being similar to Gone Girl and The Girl on the Train. Mm-hmm. Creative Artist Agency represented the movie rights to deal with Fox. Um, however, for some drama... Fox was distributing this film. They are not the distributor for this film. It is Lionsgate. In June 2017, nine weeks before filming was supposed to start, Fox pulled out of the deal. And the whole cast and crew, they had everything set. They were all ready to go. If they didn't find a distributor, the whole film was going to fall apart. And Lionsgate swoops in and picks the film up for distribution. Wow. Is there any details about why Fox backed away? No, I I, could, I didn't check the timeline to see if it was a, with like something maybe with the Disney merger where like this wasn't the Disney brand of Fox they wanted to do. But right. both Blake Lively and Paul Feig on three separate occasions throw shade at Fox and like extra features of the commentary for this movie. <laughs> hmm. Okay. <laughs> 
the good news is there's a Lionsgate like theme park, so there could be Ooh. a simple safer like <laughs> experience, you know, like where you Ooh. just get to eat, or eat, drink martinis in a like fancy house. Oh my Amazing. god! I'm imagining like a very like pastel pink and blue like bar with just like it's a martini bar. That's what it is. It's and, and the 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 waitresses are dressed in that blue dress that the floral. Yes, the floral. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. The blue dress. The blue dress. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, this is why you're here. You and I are going to carry this fashion workload. <laughs> you're you're going to have to. I'm like, horsing outfit, pantsuit, blue dress. <laughs> uh, you know what? Pantsuit is a good descriptor. We can work with that. Mm-hmm. Floral dress. Yes, it's fine. It's fine. I know why you brought me here. I'm here for you for any fashion expertise. <laughs> well, talking about his own filmography. So Feek says that he feels that all of his films are his version of very specific genre films. So Bridesmaids is his version of a wedding movie. The Heat is a cop movie. Spy is a spy movie. Ghostbusters is a sci-fi horror movie. This is, of course, what he would dub a... Uh, noir or a as he says suburban noir but he likes doing this because he likes walking into a genre that has its own specific set of rules because you know all the genres i just listed you know you kind of know what to expect when you get into them right but then he does it his own way and so he always wanted to do hitchcock and a simple favor is his version of hitchcock Oh my gosh. It's like week number two of, okay, so last week was De Palma does Hitchcock, and this week it is Paul Feig does Hitchcock. Secret theme. (laughs) Another big influence in the film was the work of author Patricia Highsmith, um, who many people may know as the author of The Talented Mr. Ripley, like that series, The Price of Salt, which would, of course, be adapted into the 2015 film Carol, um, and Deep Water, which Adrian Lyne adapted last year. Mm Mm-hmm. That one, not so successful. Go listen to our Patreon episode on E. It's not great. Everyone involved with this film did consider a thriller um, or that noir. Um, you know, But they were like, because it's suburban noir, Paul Feig said, you know, don't hide things in the shadows. Put all of it out there and let the audience figure it out, which is kind of an inverse of what you, what you would have in a normal noir film. Right. Now, have either one of y'all read the book this is based on? Mm-mm. No. I didn't even know it was based on a book until we started working on this. So I'm going to do a quick rundown because it is quite different. The book A is more of a tense psychological dissection, like a thriller, whereas obviously the film is more of a campy, high-powered, dark comedy. So those comparisons to Gone Girl and the Girl on the Train are actually because that is how the book was written. The book was more in that kind of a genre. And Kendrick and Lively even said in the commentary when they were talking, they were like, honestly, when I was reading it, I was reading it as a thriller. It was written as a thriller. There were comedic elements that Paul obviously enhanced, mm-hmm. but I thought we were going to be at first be making a thriller when we walked into this. I would argue this is definitely still a thriller. I mm-hmm. mean, yes, obviously, we're classifying it as an erotic thriller, which is why we're covering it this month. But all of those elements are still there. It's just that I think people get sucker punched by the visual aesthetic and the jokes, and they think, oh, well, then it can't possibly be noir. It can't be a thriller. But it absolutely is. Like, this is a murder mystery about doubles and sleazy insurance schemes and so on. Like, that's Mm -hmm. all very noir. It's all very thriller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally, totally. And the look is part of it. Like you were saying, it sort of is giving this suburban look where, like, there are moms that, like, put this image forward Mm -hmm. that everything's perfect and bright and sunny. And then there's something dark going on underneath, which Mm -hmm. is... I just think it's like it's so genius and so on point to make it like that as opposed to like, I guess you could have made it look like 
the girl on the train or whatever with like a darker sort of uh, veneer. That looks, like less interesting and like not as visually like appealing to me, right? Yes. Yes. And it wouldn't go with the rest of his filmography. Like I feel like all of his films are pretty bright. Like Ghostbusters mm. even like is pretty bright. Last Christmas, which is probably my least favorite of the bunch. <laughs> um yeah all of his films are really bright i i feel like it just it just fits in his filmography and like the girls look so good in the outfits like mm-hmm. i love anna kendrick and so much kate spade like that just feels so apropos it's so real <laughs> right? my sister wears and has like a bunch of kate spade yeah yeah and kate spade brightly colored woman tragic ending mm. if you guys remember. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, God. i'm sorry i'm sorry i went there but you know what i mean like it, no i mean women it, have secrets is, is yeah. what i'm saying well, absolutely that's definitely what this movie's trying to say um well and so well where the movie is told primarily from anna kendrick's point of view the book unfolds through her eyes as well as cryptic narration from emily and sean the blake lively and henry golden characters Stephanie is much less likable in the book. Uh, She pursues her relationship with Sean in a methodical and deceit-heavy way, from lying about liking Breaking Bad to eating meat for the first time in years. Uh, She changes dozens of uh, aspects of her life to become the perfect housewife stand-in for Emily. Interesting. Okay. Emily is nicer-ish in the novel. She never curses out Stephanie. Uh, Most of her blistering hot one-liners are reserved for her internal monologues in her own chapters. But that being said, she does specifically target Stephanie for her insurance scam plot. She stalks Stephanie a little bit to see if she make a good temporary nanny and fish for her plotting. Whereas I think in the film, it's more like she gets the idea during their first or second meeting. Right. Yeah. It doesn't even seem like she knows who Stephanie is until they're having drinks. And then she realizes, oh, there's a bunch here that I can work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean is in on the whole plan, kind of. He doesn't know about the twin, but he is in on the insurance scam from the get go. Right. Okay. Um, okay, now for the big one-two punch. Um, there is no hope or faith or charity. Um, Emily's identical twin is actually named Evelyn in the book. And while she is an addict, she doesn't have much of a sordid past. Uh, they never burn down their childhood home. They never kill their father. There is no third sister. There's no Bible camp. Evelyn never resurfaces trying to blackmail Emily, um, but she calls her telling her she's planning on killing herself. And so Emily goes to her rescue, but then is like, oh, wait, like this could play right into my, my insurance scam plan. Right. And so she's like, well, she should do it. But then Evelyn changes her mind. And so the, the kind of dark twist is that Emily reconvinces her to kill herself and she Ooh. does kill herself. Yikers. Whereas I like the fact that in the film, Emily is kind of a garden variety psychopath. Mm-hmm. Then the third act is basically completely different. So Emily kills the insurance agent who is asking too many questions, forces Stephanie to help her drive his body and his car off the side of a cliff, but not before she intentionally leaves a lock of Sean's hair behind to frame him for the murder. Unfortunately for her, she also leaves that sapphire ring in the car. So through a deft bit of manipulation, she you know gets the cops to go after Stephanie and Sean, framing both of them for the murders. You never find out if the charges stick, but the book basically ends with Emily taking her son and flying off into the distance. Okay. Yeah, that is a bit more conventional thriller territory, right? We're ending it not on a happy note. The femme fatale gets away and the plight of our heroine is left uncertain well and i guess because we're, we have kendrick as the the pov like she is the protagonist of this film whereas maybe that's not the case in the book because we're switching points of mm-hmm. view so much right 
But yeah, so they began shooting the film on August 14th of 2017 in Toronto. Yep. Emily, how much could you tell that this was a Canadian production? Immediately, I could tell. Because like some of the background (laughs) actors, I was like, I literally Mm -hmm. think that I know those people. You know what I mean? Oh, the talent roster is deep on this film. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it made me proud. It made Mm -hmm. me really proud to be a Torontonian. It was eventually released on September 14th, 2018, where its major competition was Shane Black's The Predator, which opened that same weekend, and The Nun, which had opened the weekend before. It was projected to gross between 12 and 15 million its opening weekend, but it went on to grow 16.1 million, finishing third behind The Predator, which made 24 million, and The Nun in its second weekend, which had made 18 million. But positive word of mouth helped it because it only dropped 35% its second weekend, earning 10.4 million and finishing in second place behind that weekend's newcomer, The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Right. I would argue that the women-centric focus of the film also helps it because that's a demographic that is, A, underserved most of the time, but also is less likely to rush out to theaters. So when it gets good reviews, good word of mouth, you're more likely to see that demographic come out in subsequent weeks, which will keep those falls low. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this feels like a movie that if it came out like in the 90s, it would have been like a VHS like hit right do you know what i mean like people would have found it and it would have become a cult classic and it still is like people are obviously watching on streaming i watched it on netflix here by the way in canada the u is added to favor (gasps) i was wondering about that because i was like wait is that confirmation that it was filmed in canada or that there's canadian money because i was so confused at that u i know I I, i looked it up i was like i was like I'm pretty sure they spell it the American way. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. no, of course we're getting the UK version because we're in Canada. Anyways, um, what was I saying? I just got so caught up in the year of it. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have been a cult classic. And I think that it still has that potential to keep growing. Like I know every few weeks, I feel like I see a woman on the internet talking about this movie and how mm-hmm. much they love it. People make shirts of it. I feel like Super Yaki's made shirts uh, oh, that I'm are sure. themed around this movie. Like, it is a grower, you know, yes. not a grower. But I, I think it's because, though, people judge the way it looked in the marketing. Like, they thought it right. was going to be this frilly, no offense, like, girly, girly, like, little comedy. And they were like, uh. And it's like, no, there's, th- this movie has plenty of surprises up its sleeve. Yeah. Also, if you ever dismiss a movie based on the fact that it looks girly or frilly or slight, mm-hmm. I challenge people track down the optics on Letterboxd. They did like a five-year thing about which films have grown the most historically. And Trace, a bunch of them are films that we have covered. You know, they're kind of weird underdog, but often female and queer films get lowballed in the ratings early on. And then people rediscover them, reappraise them, and come to appreciate them for what they actually are. And I feel like... You know, that's why we have all of these, oh, how come no one told me that this movie's so good? And it's Uh, like, bitch, a bunch of people did, and you just dismissed it as girly and frilly. But do y'all think, though, that's because, again, so again, playing into this idea of genres and what we expect from them, it Mm -hmm. looks like a certain genre. We're like, oh, we we expect this from it, so I don't want to see it. But then the people that do go see it, they're like, oh, I was wanting this from it, but instead you're giving me a subversion and not what I expected from this. So it, it, it takes longer to catch on for those very reasons? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Sorry, that was a word jumble. (laughs) No, No. I mean, Emily, walk us through some of the films in your catalog, because I'm literally thinking of a bunch of films that you've either talked about on the pod or that you've Mm -hmm. screened. 
Yeah, well, I was thinking, like, the first film that Danita and I ever showed, which was, like, not for We Really Like Her, it was actually we had our first podcast ever was called What About Meryl? And it was about Meryl Streep. <laughs> and we screened She-Devil. Yes! Oh, my God. Oh. the best. Do you not like it? I don't know. No, 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 no. So here's the thing. I've actually never seen it in full. I, I, I saw parts of it on TV when I was a kid, but I got okay. so sad because I, there was a scene, I think, where Roseanne is trying on a suit and she's too fat for it. And yeah. I was like a kid and I, I started crying because I felt so bad for her oh. and I've never like brought, brought myself to watch it. I think you oh, should Tracy try again. Oh, Tracy would love it. I'm sure I would. <laughs> It is really worth giving a second look because I feel like it is a movie that is really like feminist in other ways oh, that you yes. won't expect. Mm-hmm. And it's Susan Seidelman who did Desperately Seeking Susan. And it is just, it's just brilliant. And it's very girly. Like, like, yes. I feel like lots of people talking about Barbie, like reference She Devil because of like Meryl Streep's like house in it is all pink and it looks like a Barbie <laughs> dream house. It's incredible. <laughs> but I remember when we screened it, literally, I had. I'm not going to name the critic, but there was a critic in Toronto, like a, a well-known male critic, who we asked to promote the screening, and he quote tweeted our our screening and was like, "I don't know why you would show this, but you should go." And I was like, Ooh, "Number one, fuck. if you didn't want to promote it, just like don't, like that's yes. fine." But I was like, I, I, "I was like, I bet you haven't seen this movie since it like came out, if ever." <laughs> yeah, and I just feel like the. <sighs> The default, uh, especially of like straight male critics, is just to be like, oh, this is shit. Mm. And I'm not going to take this seriously. And so that's like one that we've had that was that was sort of a surprise. I'm trying to think. We screened Young Adult, which is one of my favorite movies. Oh, God. Yeah, that's great. Uh, <laughs> not, not a happy movie, <laughs> but it's good. <laughs> not a happy movie at all. We don't love happy movies. We want to devastate people, you know? <laughs> you are talking about the female experience. So unfortunately, still not always great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, even something like My Girl, for example, I know it's like a movie that like still talked about and like memed about the whole bees and, yeah. mm-hmm. and Macaulay Culkin. Glasses! But- yeah, exactly. Which I'm like, yeah, that's part of it. But it's actually like a really great story about a woman or sorry, a girl coming of age. Yes. And it's it's incredible. I think it's like a, a great movie. And it's like way more than the tearjerker thing. And we, we sh- right. we've shown that and people will come out of it and they're like, oh, oh, I changed yeah. my mind. Well, because th- th- that's how I feel. Because I so like my my two biggest tearjerker movies, but I think are like legitimately great movies, are Steel Magnolias and Fried Green Tomatoes. Like I <gasps> will always tell people, please, for the love of fuck, watch these movies because I feel like, especially with Steel Magnolias, it's like, oh, it's like the girly movie where all these southern women are like, you know, their hair did, and I was like, no, okay, but like it is that, but like it's so it's so much more than that. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot going on. Like diabetes is is happening, <laughs> taking lives. And fried green t- tomatoes has lesbianism and cannibalism in it. Listen, oh my God, you love the cannibalism. Part. It's they eat a man. They eat a racist. <laughs> they do as you should. Fried green tomatoes. I'm telling you guys, my favorite movie. Like it was literally, I think, an awakening for me where I was like, mm-hmm. my mom made me watch it, and I was like, oh, I I really like this movie, yeah. and I was like. Why do I why do I like this movie so much? Obviously the cannibalism was part of it. But then later I was like, oh, I'm like a little bit gay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was like I love that for you. Oh, oh. Like I literally, guys, I, I made my mom take me to like the Whistle Stop Cafe, which exists. Oh! 
And I have a photo, maybe I'll send it to you guys, of me wearing a Mariah Carey rainbow tour shirt yes. in, in the <laughs> Whistle Stop Cafe. And I was like, man, why why did I not connect the dots sooner on this one? <laughs> but you, you, you did eventually. There, there's no time limit there. on this stuff. No. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But like, I know if I was like, if I was a kid today too like a simple favor like i probably would like love it and Mm -hmm. like maybe i think you could read this and not see it as like a gay text like if you are just not with it if you really want to overlook it yeah yeah i mean it's absolutely i can't overlook it's so queer it's so queer i could see like a suburban mom watching it and just sort of being like oh whatever you know these two are such friends yeah <laughs> why are they kissing that's weird yeah oh, they just had too many martinis that's what happens you know it happens <laughs> carol and i did that the other week yeah <laughs> so before we move on i just did want to reference a couple of the films that are on this letterbox list i'll link to it in the show notes in case people are interested it's fascinating so it's uh 50 feature films that have experienced the biggest upward gradient in their average ratings over the course of letterbox history so from november 2021 number one is the snoop dogg horror film bones which fucking love yeah but movies like jennifer's body mama mia hannah montana deb's both (gasps) scooby-doo films high school musical (laughs) 2 white chicks aquamarine uh uptown girls princess diaries 2 josie and the pussycats crossroads is anyone getting a fucking theme all these gay movies (laughs) gay movies and girl movies i've screened a few of the crossroads jennifer's body yeah Mm -hmm. screen those yep Mm -hmm. oh my Mm -hmm. god oh god coming y'all's way soon Yes. Are, you actually, are you doing it for real we are yeah yes. maybe I'll, we'll cut that out don't worry uh okay so back i'm almost done actually i promise but um so so this movie actually on a 20 million dollar budget which it's so low. i feel like low for this but it's kind mm-hmm. of it's still in that like mid-budget you know uh, adult yes. r-rated comedy right like i feel like honestly well i mean we can talk about the proposed sequel that has apparently been greenlit that's just going to be streaming on amazon prime I'm fine with that. I am too, but it's like, oh, like th- that's where we are now, where these mid-budget... Mid-budget goes to streaming. Yeah, they're not mm-hmm. going to theaters anymore. No. Which seems like you're leaving money on the table, but what do we know? Yeah, whatever. But um, yeah, it, it goes on to gross $53.5 million domestically and $44 million internationally. We've got a worldwide gross of $97.5 million. So yeah, four times its budget. That international gross is surprising because comedies, if most people want to call this a comedy, don't tend to perform well internationally. So I'm shocked that that number is as high as it is. I'm wondering if the soundtrack for this movie had any part in that because the soundtrack of this movie is made up of uh, 60s French pop. And I wonder if that was pushed in the marketing over there. Potentially. It gives me very Catch Me If You Can vibes. Uh I also feel like... The, like, thriller format can, like, translate in any language in a way. Yes. Yeah. Where you don't need to, like, fully understand what people are saying. You just, like, see this crazy plot and you just follow along. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's like people that, that are English-speaking that watch a telenovela and they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> like- right. It's so big. I'm just following. I don't really know what's going on, but I'm loving it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
But critics love this. Uh, we've got an 84% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.9 out of 10, uh, 67 out of 100 on Metacritic. Letterbox users have given it a 6.4 out of 10, and CinemaScore audiences walking out of the theaters back in 2018 gave it a B+. That letterbox score seems low to me. I would have thought this would be in the sevens, but okay. Yeah, in case you don't know, I obviously letterbox deals in a five-star rating system. I just multiply it by two to match a 10-star rating system. So it has a 3.2 out of five on letterbox. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's it. Let's talk about this movie. Okay. So I'm only going to bring in one reference for this week, and it is from an unnamed author writing for the website Mental Queerness, and the article is called How a Simple Favor Delivers on Queer Representation. Mm. So as you said, Trace, we open with some jaunty French pop music as we watch the credits roll, and then we open on a framing device, which hopefully everyone caught on that Trace and I modeled in the opening. So <laughs> Stephanie has a vlog and she is answering questions about her friend Emily, Blake Lively, who has been missing for five days. So even though I have talked endlessly about how much I hate <laughs> in media res openings, this I don't mind because it's actually more of a framing device, but it also, when we catch back up to it, it's not the end of the film. So we're not spoiling anything that Emily is missing. That That's the thing, right? It's actually in media. Media res. Mm -hmm. It's not the end of the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Catching up with the story. And it's also, it's not a gratuitous amount of time that it takes us to get back to Emily's disappearance. As I said, 40 minutes in this nearly two hour film. Yeah. Also a thing on this, this French music, by the way. So at some point later in the film, uh, I think I've mentioned this song several times before in the podcast because it's such a big queer song. But mm -hmm. oh my God. Forgive me for this French. I tried to memorize how to pronounce it. Um, the oh, song Les Tombes Les Files plays. And that song translates to Drop It With The Girls or Stop Messing Around With The Girls in English. And it tells the story of a girl whose heart has been broken. Uh, she addresses the boy who done the heartbreaking, warning mm -hmm. him that if he doesn't leave the girls alone, he'll end up heartbroken himself. And it was a really big song in France in the 60s. And there's like a dark tone of the song contrasted with the more upbeat mood of its style. But in 1995, April March recorded an English cover of this song calling it Chick Habit, which featured prominently in the camp classic, But I'm a Cheerleader, playing over its Ooh, opening credits. More queerness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm a Cheerleader is great. And we're, we're, we're just going to have to cover it because in a way it is a horror movie because it's the worst thing that could happen to you if you are a queer person. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll just do a whole theme month of conversion camp horror. How's that? Oh, oh yeah, God. let's do that. <laughs> I love that. Although the, the house in But I'm a Cheerleader, I want to live in. Like, yes. It's beautiful. <laughs> like, <laughs> There's got to be some beauty among the sadness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you want the gays to watch it, it's got to look a little cute, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, trauma castle, but I still want to live there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a mojo dojo trauma castle? Yes. Okay. I love that. <laughs> All right. So Stephanie launches into her story, and this is when we flash back and we actually get to see it. She is a super involved, seemingly perfect single parent who makes the other parents such as Stacy, played by Kelly McCormick, Darren, played by Andrew Reynolds, and Sana, played by Aparna Nanchurla. She makes them all feel really shitty about themselves. Okay. But, but also like, they make fun of her. Her line delivery of like, you don't have a helium tank? What are you, bad parent? Uh -huh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> 
Also, y'all, okay, so Andrew Reynolds' character was literally another mom in the script, and they just right. cast him in that role and didn't change anything about it. I love that. Love it. <laughs> I mean, even when he's, he gets his big moment at the end of the film, and he says, you know, you fuck with one of the moms, you fuck with us all, that feels like such a contemporary take on, oh, yeah, you know, anybody who's a stay-at-home parent is probably going to get adopted into this mommy culture with the playdates and all those other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I also love that shot when they're just like like smoking weed. Uh, they catch <laughs> <laughs> and then they drive over in their super quiet uh, hybrid car. And so silly. Lively with the car. I I love when uh, this is bad, but I love when a woman gets hit by a car as a dramatic moment in a in a oh. movie. It's just the best Mean Girls, you know what I mean? Like that kind yes. of. Okay. Vibe. It's so funny. So we just did an episode last month on our Patreon feed about horror tropes that we are so sick and tired of. And one of them is when someone walks into the street and it's angled in a way where you're like, okay, that person's clearly about to get hit by a car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I it, I don't love it in this movie, um, but I do love it in Mean Girls. <laughs> I think it's because it's so exaggerated. Like, they're not getting hit in any kind of realistic way. Yeah. I would argue this is a bit more realistic, mm -hmm. but it's still, you know, both cases, the women would be dead, but they're not. And it's just, it's more of a comedic punctuation that works so well because it feels like it should be deadly. Yes, but it works in the end of this film, though, because she just keeps crawling. <laughs> well, there is Although, that. I will say my favorite, like, person gets hit by a car in a comedic beat is Romy and Michelle when she just flies 10 feet over the limousine. Mm. The best. Mm -hmm. The best. <laughs> Super. All that stuff in the car is just great. Floating out of the car. Uh, <laughs> Why? I don't know. Come it's a dream. On. It's a dream. Go with it's it. a dream. <laughs> so Stephanie has a son named Miles who is played by Joshua Satine, and he is friends with little Nikki, played by Ian Ho. And Nikki's mom is the mysterious Emily. So she never seems to be present. No one will volunteer her for any of the activities in class, but when she arrives, she does so walking slow motion in the rain in an absolutely gorgeous three-peat suit and, like, semi-bowler fedora. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the shoes are just mm. not right for the rain. They're, mm -mm. like, these colorful heels and i just i love that that's the first thing we see of her are these heels and we're like okay she does not fit in in this environment this is mm -hmm. not where she's meant to be no. meanwhile anna kendrick's character stephanie is like in you know those perfect like hunter boots mm -hmm. she's prepared for the yeah. rain She's, She's weather appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to bring in, I'm just going to refer to this author as mental queerness for the sake of this episode. Okay. So mental queerness says here, Stephanie's reaction is literally the definition of gay panic when she first sees Emily. And I thought that was such an interesting read because initially... Emily presents as this figure of mystery. You know, she's the mm. wow factor among all of these appropriately dressed moms and yet if you look at this as a bit of a queer coming out story for stephanie who realizes that she's a little bit more bi than she realized this moment is holy shit what am i seeing that's why it's in slow-mo oh okay see and that's okay this, i'm jumping ahead a little bit but like there's mm -hmm. a part you know where, where, where emily tells her that oh like i had a threesome with my husband as ta and yes. stephanie assumes that the other that the third person the ta was a man yes and 
I thought that was interesting because no one ever just that, that's never the first thing you assume when someone says they had a threesome when a straight couple has a threesome and I was like is she just like yeah is she like repressing this idea of like oh like let's like maybe I am a little bi maybe I'm a little <laughs> gay <laughs> yeah it, it's interesting I think she assumes that because she's talking to a woman whereas if she had have been talking to Sean she might have said oh it was probably a woman but I think that's her straight default whereas she is a little bit more open to queerness than she realizes but of course she's also like ah, ah, I'm a mom don't what <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like I mean like again one, one of the first lines Blake Lively has is when she tells her kid I'll let you tear my labia as you exited my body and like <laughs> <laughs> the reactions Kendrick gives in this movie <laughs> the lines are choice throughout this entire film which again is why i find it so hard when we lose blake lively because we lose the reactions and we lose the zingers yeah so emily initially protests this play date between the boys but she does relent when she ends up inviting stephanie for drinks and immediately stephanie feels out of place it's a giant palatial money pit that emily will not stop complaining about but stephanie is also quite confronted but i would say also very interested in the giant nude painting mm-hmm. yeah which lively did pose for but wearing a skin colored stocking <laughs> wow okay <laughs> She's method. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, the, but they did seek out an artist. Like, they were looking for someone for it. And, um, yeah, because uh, I was like, oh, my God, did she really post nude for this? And the answer is she posed. It just, she just <laughs> wasn't actually nude. Um, also, right. straight boys and lesbians out there, sorry, that is not her butt jumping out of the pool. That is her double. Right. I'm sorry, the lake. <laughs> <laughs> we knew what you meant. Yeah. So Emily has to repeatedly chastise Stephanie for her tendency to apologize. This becomes a bit of a running gag. But Emily herself will spend a fair amount of time complaining about how she doesn't want to live in this house. She hates the suburbs. It is not for her. I think this is a really, really clever way to establish the relationship between both women, but also get through all of the backstory exposition. It's, oh, I'm married to this famous author. He had this best-selling book. Oh, I read that in book club. Like, it's it's a valuable character insight, but it's also getting us ready so that when we finally meet Sean, it's like, cool, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this. But I feel like, too, it's like doing it over drinks and just talking. Like, we almost feel like we're in this happy hour the two of them are a part of. And we're, like, in, like, the gossip they're giving each other on the on their own lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. Especially as Stephanie starts to reveal a bit of her backstory, which is that she is a widower, which is kind of a rare thing. You don't hear a lot of stories about a female widower. And we learn here that her husband and her brother both died in the same car accident. Put that in your back pocket for later. Yes. <laughs> so Stephanie reveals that she has given up dating. Dating men from the city is too scary, apparently. Um, um, okay, but if your head's going to end up in a trash can, your head's going to end up in a trash can. So just go for it. <laughs> right? <laughs> And honestly, if you knew anything about true crime, you're probably in more danger in the suburbs because a serial killer is oh, yeah. going to be hanging out there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again, if we're leaning into a queer reading between these two women, Emily says things like, baby, you're way too sexy to give up. Mm-hmm. So she's got to get back out there and start dating. Like maybe this smoking hot woman who is feeding you strong martinis or this very hot but like bland personality man that's about to walk in the door 
Oh boy, yeah. So enter Sean, played by Henry Golding, looking amazing, not an issue. But uh, they end up, sorry, they being Stephanie and Sean, bond over their shared English lit background. So they talk about the Canterbury Tales. You can practically see Emily rolling her eyes the whole time. But she does drop the notification that she's having difficulty finding a nanny. So this is where... Stephanie makes an offer. Oh, if you ever need anything, just let me know. I'm happy to help out. So this is when we jump back to the vlog. And Stephanie talks about making friendship bracelets. And we have this moment where Emily has asked Stephanie to pick up Nikki. And she catches up with them in a park. I love the moment where Emily order Stephanie to stop denigrating her good parenting Mm -hmm. to make up for Emily's shitty parenting. So to me, this is very much the, okay, the women are still feeling each other out. And obviously, Emily has a very strong personality. She's not afraid to swear. She's not afraid to like cuss somebody out. But I I like that she also acknowledges her own, her own failures in a gentle way. It's uncommon because a lot of what we see and especially mainstream cinema which is this is that's what this is is women who are moms need to love being moms and even though emily is technically the villain of this film mm-hmm. at this point we don't know that and it's kind of refreshing to see she says like the nice thing i can do for nikki is blow my brains out like a what the fuck yeah <laughs> To me, that's a plant. That's Emily putting a little pin in Stephanie's brain saying, hey, I might go missing sometime. And then you could say, oh, she was having these kind of suicidal ideation. She she was struggling with being a mom. But nevertheless, though, you don't hear female characters who are mothers say that in Mm -hmm. quote unquote normal (laughs) films. (laughs) Not mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like a bad mom scenario. Mm, But then that's that's played for laughs. Yeah. yeah, it, it it just especially in suburbia, it's like mm-hmm. not cool to be a mom that hates being a mom. It's more taboo than a brother fucking or half sister. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Go ahead with that. Yeah. It's definitely presented as somehow more acceptable to fuck your brother in this film than to be a bad mom. I mean, you know, I'll wait. I'll wait till we actually get to the confession. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're too excited, and I get it. It's just like what. <laughs> So Stephanie fashions herself as something of an amateur photographer. She takes a lot of photos for the kids and their various yearbooks and so on. So she takes a picture of Emily and Emily gets proper frustrated and mad. So she ends up making her delete it. But then she says, oh, you're basically too meek. You need to get more of a backbone. And she says, you got to go right at them, the powerful ones, or they'll fuck you in the face. Oh, man. You said Super Yaki was doing a lot of uh, t-shirts for this movie. Um, This needs to be on a (laughs) t-shirt. God. (laughs) This exchange does end with Emily flirtatiously asking, are you propositioning me? Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So they end up uh, going back to Emily's house. This is where she shows her how to make a real martini and talks about how valuable it can be to hit the reset. So when you know what this film is doing or where it's going, you can see that Emily's actually dropping a lot of hints about her plan. And in some ways, it's about her trying to set up Stephanie as a patsy, but also how Stephanie starts to become more like Emily, the more confident she becomes. Mm -hmm. So 
Stephanie does say she has a dark side. And okay, wait, trades- wait, wait. I, I want to point this out, though. So, you know, because the way she does this is so she goes, like, I'm not as nice as you think. And I love that Emily's first reaction is to go, are you baiting me? Because I'm going to tell you right now, this is a personal pet peeve of mine. I mm-hmm. hate it. hate it. When someone messages you and they're like, oh, my God, guess what happened? No, just fucking tell me. Like, don't make me ask you what happened. Just tell me. I fucking hate the baiting shit. And I love that Emily calls her out immediately for this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's important that I do feel like this is Emily looking for a little bit of leverage, but it's also the kind of teasing that you do with a good friend. Like I'm I'm actually reading the parenting guide that Mean Girls is based off of Queen Bees and Wannabes. And a lot of it is dedicated to things like when does teasing step into nefarious or malicious Mm -hmm. and You can do teasing among friends as long as if somebody tells you, oh, you need to stop or you're hurting my feelings or you're picking at my vulnerable spot, which you could argue Emily does throughout the rest of the film when she yells brother fucker at Stephanie at inopportune times. But initially here, this very much feels like, no, we're having a really good time. I'm enjoying your company. Tell me more about your incest story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but also it's like that fine line between like, are we friends or like, yeah. is there mm-hmm. something else going on here? Because like, yes. I feel like that, especially between like two women, I feel mm-hmm. like it's something that I've been confused many times. And I've been like, oh, I didn't even realize that person was hitting on me because <laughs> I just thought we were having like a fun girls conversation. And then I was like, yes. oh, no, the girl that looks like Robin was hitting on me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like Robin the singer? Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, Emily, uh, that's hot. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I was like, I was like, man, really Damn, mess- messed that one up. Really screwed that one up. <laughs> Well, thinking about that, so Mental Queerness reads an interesting piece when Stephanie does learn that Emily has had this threesome with Sean and his female TA. So Mental Queerness says, Stephanie's response reads like a young queer woman who encounters a lesbian for the first time. (laughs) She gets flustered and borderline uncomfortable, but it's because it's stirring deep-seated emotions within them. Huh. Okay, that was a conversation. Sorry. (laughs) I just, I guess the first time I saw this film, it never occurred to me to read Stephanie as queer. I thought a lot of the chemistry between the two actors was about Emily manipulating, like using her sexual wiles to get Stephanie to do what she wants, because that's what we see her do with all the other characters. Well... Okay, I guess so. Okay, so here's the, here's the thing. This is what I kind of love about the Blake Lively character in this film is that, yes, she is very manipulative. You can see, like, the gears turning. However, mm-hmm. there are also times, though, where I'm like, I think she is genuinely being nice to Stephanie sometimes. And mm-hmm. when she ha- when we're about to get this confession, like, I mean, look, y'all have been around someone, right? Where you're, you're getting drinks with someone, you're talking, maybe you drink a little too much. And you're like, you know what, let me, let me tell you some, let me tell you some of my deepest, darkest secrets or, or mm-hmm. some of my biggest embarrassments. I have totally done that. Sometimes regretted it the next day, sometimes not. But sure. I guess first glance, I, yeah, I wasn't reading it as queer because I was like, no, I've had this with friends. However, I have also had this exact same moment with friends that I later hooked up with eventually. Right. <laughs> and this was laying the foundation. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I feel like because Stephanie presents in this like very like femme in a straight way, mom mm-hmm. kind of thing, like 
it's just hard to see her in that way. But it's also like uh, as someone who I kind of can dress like that sometimes. Right. I'm like, I'm like, and this is why people don't always know that I, I'm a little bit gay. Mm-hmm. Which is insane. I wear little earrings with little weird things on them. Like, they should know. <laughs> is that- but, you know, <laughs> like weird animal earrings. And you're like, mm, straight girls don't wear those. Um. Anyways, <laughs> I feel like that's part of it. But also, like, I don't know how you guys feel about what we're just about to get into, which is what she reveals. Mm-hmm. But, like, I feel like her being into the incest is like a hint into her like maybe being into different sexual things in general yeah well okay 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 so first of all okay look joe what happens Mm -hmm. in this scene tell us what happens in the scene okay so we're on the couch we've had emily share her dark secret quote unquote and then we get stephanie so she counters with the story of fucking her half-brother chris who is played by Shit's creek dustin milligan mm. and here's the thing that gets to me she fucked him at her father's wake mm-hmm. and chris looked like her dad oh yeah so to me i'm like there are multiple facets of devious sexuality if you want to read into that so she basically fucked her dad at her dad's funeral it just happened to also be her hot brother so okay couple things a what i love about this and it's something that will be repeated later it's a stylistic choice is that we have stephanie lying about this mm-hmm. as we the audience are seeing the seeing truth it. actually yeah. happen and this will happen later when uh when emily talks about not quote-unquote killing her sister mm-hmm I think that's a really good subversion of the trope because, you know, again, you expect for like, you know, oh, she's going to lie. It's going to come out later. No, no, no. no. Right. We're going to find out now. And the women call each other on it both times. They can mm-hmm. read each other's lies and they call bullshit. Yes. Um, but what I also I don't know if I want to say I love this. Do y'all think they just fucked the one time? No. No. Okay, that's the thing. The movie never confirms nor denies, although we get a hint of it when obviously with the death scene later. Mm-hmm. But it's like. She kept fucking her brother. <laughs> yes, half brother. The hu- the husband, right? The one that dies in the car crash too. Yes. He mm-hmm. sort of says he's like, "Is it my kid?" Like, I don't yes. know. Like, clearly, I think he was seeing more of it. And like, yes. why would he have seen what happened in that basement? Mm-hmm. You know. Well, even when he says he wants to go for a drive, and he invites Chris, the half brother, to come with him, yeah. he does that after he sees this flirtatious relationship between Stephanie and Chris. So you're like, oh yeah, no, they've been fucking this whole time, or at least they're they're still very very flirty. But when he says, you know, is the boy even mine? To me, that reads as, oh, that boy is definitely not his. Yeah. Well, so interestingly enough, in the book, Emily will use this as blackmail against Stephanie. And I think it actually does come out. What is surprising to me is that while this plot point doesn't necessarily come to nothing because it's obviously a recurring gag in the film with Blake Mm -hmm. Lively constantly calling Stephanie uh, Stephanie a brother fucker. But it's never for blackmail. It's never like a plot point in the film outside of the fact that her her brother and husband died because Mm -hmm. of it. I yeah. think it's floated like over Stephanie's head though. Like the the car calling her brother fucker is like her being like, "Oh, I could potentially use this mm. against you, but yeah. I won't." Right? Like like it's it's not actually blackmail, but the potential is there. And you think it's going to go there. You but like this movie is more interesting than that. But isn't it again, I'm not even I want to say weird, but it's it's 
interesting that mm-hmm. a mainstream Hollywood film with incest doesn't really choose to pass judgment on the fact that there's incest in this movie or yeah. have a kind of comeuppance for Stephanie for that fact. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I think it reveals to us that Stephanie is not the boring housewife that you took her for. And this movie repeatedly confirms everyone has a little bit more going on beneath the surface than you give them credit for. It's about who do you reveal your secrets to? How well do you know the people? And obviously, in a thriller capacity, that's, oh, you could be inviting someone who's going to set you up for a false murder to do (laughs) martinis with in in the kitchen. But I think When you look at this as more of a dark romance with comedy elements, this is these two women revealing that they're both a little bit fucked up and liking it in each other. Well, and Emily already knows how to get to Stephanie because, again, when she she keeps lying, she's lying, lying, and then she goes, swear on your dad's grave. And she can't. Mm -hmm. And again, like watching this as an audience member, you're like, oh my God. But then Blake Lively like cuts through it and just like, you're a brother fucker. I got a Mm -hmm. brother fucker taking care of my kid. It's the right way to use comedy to undercut the seriousness of like, holy shit, we're talking about a universal taboo here. Mm-hmm. But she also like, in another movie, she might have been like, you know what? Actually, this this is a deviant woman. Maybe I should not have her taking care of my kids seriously. Yes. <laughs> and she doesn't. No, no, no. She's not faced. But also, she's not a good mom. And that's kind of part of it. But like, mm-hmm. you know, it's... It is really, I almost forget about it until we hear brother fucker again. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like yes. there's so much other stuff going on that you're like, oh shit, yeah, that happened. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I think that this moment, this revelation is what convinces Emily that Stephanie is the perfect foil to set in motion her plan, right? Like, oh, this woman is fucked up just like me. I can get her to do what I need to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, here's the other interesting thing. I've seen a bunch of queer women be like, I really like this movie, and I really like Killing Eve. And to me, those are very oh, apt comparisons. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could see that 100%. Except that Killing Eve fucked up its ending hardcore. I still haven't watched the final season because I heard it was so bad. I just can't bring myself to finish it. <laughs> it's one of those, we're going to kiss, and then one of us gets killed. Ugh, God damn it. You're like, cool, 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 cool. No one has ever done that queer narrative before. Mm. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly what Emily has in her voicemail message. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Oh, we should all channel Emily's, just her her energy and her verve. Leave a message or go fuck yourself. Yeah, I the whole like don't say sorry thing. I was like, I just need to say to myself like, you're too sexy to say sorry. Just stop saying right. Sorry. You know, like we should all aspire <laughs> to be Emily in very many ways. <laughs> but it's also it's such good advice for women, right? Like you said, Emily, this is this is a film that seems explicitly not catering to women, but it is speaking to that experience. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've even just been editing podcasts where I'm with a female co-host and the number of times that they use cautionary or half assertive language, kind of, sort of, you know, the question mark at the end of a sentence. And it's because women are conditioned to apologize and seem less confident. So someone like Emily does pop because we're just like, oh, here's a woman who says fuck you to the patriarchy. It's really refreshing. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and she does it while looking hot as hell in like gender fuck outfits, you know? Yes. And she calls it out. She says, don't apologize. That's a fucked up female habit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Straight up. Straight up. She points it out. This this movie points out so many like double standards about women. Yep. And I think queer women too, to be like yeah. they like even like Blake Lively wearing those suits, she still is like very feminine in it too. Mm-hmm. Like she's not like full butch, which but she's she's giving queerness. It's just yes. like this is like this is like a femme fantasy, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I love even like there's the moment where she takes off because she's wearing this what looks like a three-piece suit, but then she takes off the blazer and it's revealed that like the cuffs and the collar are separate. Yeah. And it's leaning into flash dance aesthetics, but it's queering it in a very contemporary modern way. So that was actually a part of though, because again, part of the studio being like, we can't have her wearing these things. They're not sexy. And so mm-hmm. it was Blake Lively collaborating with costume designer Renee Calfu saying, okay, well, what if we just make it like a, like a, like a, a strippers, like a, like rip off mm-hmm. outfit where we right. can do that. And then they, that's what they did with this. Which yeah. is so amazing. Yeah. Ugh. It's, it's, it's <laughs> great. And also I think it like makes, Emily seemed like a little even weirder and like sort of would take Stephanie back to be like, oh, my, she's taking off this stuff. Like, what is mm-hmm. what is going on? There's so much going on with this person. <laughs> she's stripping in front of me. But also she wore that to work and to pick up her kid. You know, it, in a way, it's almost like a stripper disguise, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love the sexual energy. <laughs> Okay, so Emily goes to work activating her plan. She calls in a favor asking if Stephanie can pick up Nikki, and then she basically fucks off and disappears. So Stephanie panics. She cannot get a hold of Emily. She calls Sean, who is in London, looking after his sick mom, but he won't be back for a couple of days. And when he does, they end up calling the police. And this is where we start to get a bit more other backstory about Emily, such as the fact that she's an only child and that her parents died when she was a teenager, both false. <laughs> oh, because because we're going to get a great fucking cameo for the woman playing her mother later. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So afterwards, Sean admits that Emily is an enigma and he's essentially given up a writing so that he could chase her, which is a very interesting opposite to what right. emily has suggested because they both make it sound like they gave up who they were so that they could enter into this marriage and move to the suburbs and i think that's an interesting conflation too it just highlights it depends on who you're talking to they're gonna filter or you're gonna get a filtered version of their backstory but i also like that like i mean again at the risk of genderizing this like sean is almost like the stereotypical like wife role in this movie yeah that's mm-hmm. it. <laughs> no, no, for sure. Like he's hardly seen. Uh, he just serves as eye candy. Mm-hmm. We don't care that much about him. No, we don't know that much about him. No. Yeah, I, I, and I, you know, again, like because so both of y'all said y'all were underwhelmed the first time you saw this movie. Did it work? Mm-hmm. Did Did you like it more in a second watch? And if so. How does how does because I feel like a lot of the reason we don't get to know Sean too well is because he's constantly like a suspect. Hmm. Yeah, I guess one of the ways that I read this as an erotic thriller is as you just described, Trace, where he's he's kind of the wife and like stories where a person is potentially going to get offed and their spouse is going to be blamed or they're going to profit from it. 
that person is often a non-character. So I like that this is a gender reversal of that where you're like, oh, well, maybe Sean's just going to either get framed for this or he's going to get murdered. Yeah. I love that take, actually. It like kind of reminds me of like in Fatal Attraction, like the mm-hmm. wife of Michael and Douglas, Archer. Mm-hmm. where yeah. like, we don't really know that much about Nothing. her. Or the poor daughter with her bunny gets burned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a nice change of pace. And like now that Henry Golding is like a little bit more famous, it kind of, I think, feels funny because you're like, yeah. he should have a media role. But mm-hmm. um, he got that, I guess, in Last Christmas. Again, not Boo. not the best movie. Not the best <laughs> yeah, movie. I, that's the one I haven't seen. But I mean, spoiler alert, everyone. That's, he's basically, is he dead or is he an angel the whole time or is she dead the whole time? He's he dead. is the, the ghost he's an, one. Okay, yeah. he's the ghost. Okay, got it. Yeah. I guess he's kind of the side piece again. Um, <laughs> you know what? Paul, Paul Feig is like, you know what? He's hot and we're going to use him as yep. a hot man in, well, in these movies. But that's kind that. of what happens in Crazy Rich Asians, though, because he's mm-hmm. not the star of Crazy Rich Asians. Constance Wu is the star of that movie and so is Michelle Yeoh. Yeah. You're yeah. right. You're right. Well, you know what? Good for you, Henry. Just keep it up. Keep yeah. just He's made a cute. career of being a hot side piece. Um, excuse <laughs> me. You. Y'all are all forgetting his No, move on. We're not talking about movie. Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes. On <laughs> <laughs> that shit. I saw part of that movie on a plane and no thank you. Okay, I'm just going to say I've only seen the first G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, and I haven't seen this in theaters, but I it's remember okay. having fun with it. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Those movies are messy, but they can be fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so Stephanie goes into investigatory mode. So she visits Emily's office. So Emily works for a very powerful man named Dennis Nylon, played by Rupert Friend. And we're told that he's like, he's the asshole that you got to punch in the face or else he's gonna fuck you. And so Stephanie tries to make her way in. I will say the part with the receptionist, it's so stupid and I love it. Yes. I also want to point out to the uh, actress playing Dennis Island's assistant, Kiko, is trans actress and comedian Patty Harrison. Yeah. Oh, I knew I recognized her. Yeah. This is like before like, she was mostly doing stand up at the time, but like now she's much, she's getting obviously bigger roles. And if anyone right. watches I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson, she's one of the funniest parts of that show. Tables. <laughs> I gotta get my tables. <laughs> what you do to my tables, man? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So uh Stephanie ends up sneaking into Emily's office. This is where she finds a picture with the words gotta have faith on the underside of it. And then she gets caught and escorted out of the building. But this is where she really starts to channel Emily. Yeah. And she goes on this tirade against him. She calls him a low rent Tom Ford and she manages to get away with it. But that's that's kind of what I love about this. So again, I I think on a second watch you really start to appreciate Anna Kendrick's work in this a lot more. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I love watching her become more Emily-like, but also <laughs> where she mentions the Indonesian children. He's like, wait, they are not Indonesian children. They are Vietnamese teenagers <laughs> God. in the sweatshops. <laughs> so bad. I love a good and appropriate joke. And this movie is has them in spades. It has a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the other moms observe Stephanie's latest arts and craft project, which is flyering the Gotta Have Faith posters around town. But you could also argue that her other craft project is hooking up with Sean because she is cooking him dinner. This is raising the eyebrow of Detective Summerhill, who is played by Bashir Salahuddin. 
I do think that this character Mm -hmm. is a bit of dead weight, if only because this feels like a narrative that is not going to benefit from the presence of a police officer. Yeah, Paul Feig mentions this, so he really likes the actor playing this I think the actor's good, it's just the role doesn't amount to much. I agree, but he does talk a little bit about how, oh, in these types of movies you have a cop character, and I really liked what he did with this role, and I was like, I don't think he's bad in this role, but I don't necessarily think he does something that's too different from a cop we would see in another, like, film of this ilk. Yeah. Yeah. He gets some zippy one-liners, but... Again, it's the kind of thing where you either want more of him or less of him. Yeah, yeah. He like he needed to be either a bigger conflict for everyone or just mm-hmm. not like barely an entity. Like he shows up for one scene and is gone. Yeah, exactly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So Stephanie is obviously still doing her vlog, and she begins using it to solicit tips. So when Detective Summerhill reveals that Emily was spotted renting a white Kia in cash, she ends up passing this information along. We end up eventually finding Emily's body as a result in a Michigan lake. She's dead. We are at the 40-minute mark of this movie. This happens way earlier than I remember it happening. I thought this was like past the halfway point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It feels too early. Yeah, I feel like I put a pause on the movie to like go to the bathroom and I was like, oh shit, there's so much more left. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I kind of, because it'd been a while, I had, I had forgot sort of where it goes and I was like, wait, yes. what? Um, <laughs> where and I where else that. could we go? <laughs> yeah, wh- like what the heck? And then, then you're like, mm, this is, this is of course where they're going to bring in a twin thing. Like there mm-hmm. has to be a twin thing. But that's the thing. It's a two hour movie. So this is the end of act one, basically. Yeah, essentially. But you're right, Emily. This is, you know, oh, we've got a twin. We've got a sordid backstory. You know, we've got somebody lying to cover up their their history. Classic erotic thriller territory, folks. Oh, yeah. Also, I'm sorry. I'm just because we're about to move into this funeral scene where mm-hmm. Stephanie and Sean will fuck. Uh, and we get yes. some some very. Right, so here, here's the interesting thing about this. So Paul Feig, in, in the commentary, in these interviews and shit, he is on record saying he doesn't like filming sex scenes. He is the type of person that is very prudish. He gets very uncomfortable watching sex scenes in movie theaters with people. He also mm-hmm. doesn't really think nudity should be in films all the time unless it really needs to be there, which kind of. All right. I, I, I was very it's much a little like, prudish, huh. but okay. Well, yeah. He wasn't like, oh, like other people people should do this he's like this i i just wouldn't put this in right. my movies and so the fact that we get implied kind of lingus in this film is kind of like mm-hmm. it, good for him for for stretching a little bit sure but also stephanie has a thing for fucking people after funerals i was yes, just gonna say does. that <laughs> but i i would argue you know we we've talked about the weird things that people do when they're grieving, how there isn't a right or wrong way to do it. And I kind of like this idea that one of Stephanie's, I guess, coping mechanisms to deal with grief or when she's feeling out of control Mm -hmm. is to engage sexually. And that feels very erotic thrillery, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, people are always looking to fuck. Like if it's an (laughs) inopportune moment, people are down to fuck in an erotic thriller. (laughs) 
Okay, so yes, we're fucking. Uh, unfortunately, this doesn't really go well with little Nikki, who is starting to drop weird lines throughout the film. So he'll say, you know, my mom's gone, but she's not really dead, or she's she's dead, but she's not coming back. And you're like, wait, what does this kid know that we don't? Yes, yes. Number one, I love that you call him little Nikki, because I just can't <laughs> not think oh, no. of the Adam Sandler film. <laughs> But yes, he's he's dropping like very unsubtle hints of like, yeah, you should probably look into this. Mm-hmm. And I I kind of love that. Mm-hmm. But we don't really see Emily like Mm-mm. interacting with him, do we? I don't no. remember that, right? No. Like we never see that. But I imagine her like sneaking in every once in a while and being like, here you go. And then like, mm-hmm. like going back into the bushes like Homer Simpson, you know. But that's I mean? the thing though. So I mean, <laughs> if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this movie, we do not know that she has a twin yet. So no, no. This is playing off almost like, is it a ghost? Like are we going into supernatural territory mm-hmm. with this movie? I feel like when I first watched this, I was very much like, they can't kill Blake Lively yet. Like that's just not possible. I don't know if I reached, like went to twin right away, but I was very much like, I know she faked her death. Like that has to have been the thing. Right. Well, particularly because we're doing that thing where, oh, well, we found the body and you see them pull her out of the water, but she's, you know, she's waterlogged. She looks like she's been in there a couple of days. She doesn't look very good. So part of it is, could she have found someone else who looks like her? And then because it's an erotic thriller, that's when you start to move to, oh, is she a twin? Does she have a twin? Although I will say that is Blake Lively and all that dead makeup uh, when they pull her out of the water. She seems like the kind of actress who would want to get down and dirty with all of this shit. I mean, she doesn't even drink and she like learned how to make a martini for it. <laughs> I don't think she gets a lot of chances to do things because she's such a pretty face. You know what I mean? So yeah. she's mm-hmm. like, let let me just be a dead body. Let me be a heroin addict. Let me do whatever mm-hmm. you want. Well, that, that's the interesting thing, though. So when it came to the hair, you know, they have a body double for her because they wanted someone who wasn't maybe quite as svelte as she was. So it's it's interesting hearing them use the language when they're like, okay, we wanted someone that looked like this, but then for the for when it was actually her, you know, oh shoot, like they wanted to do makeup on her face where it's like, oh, those people that put too much makeup on their face where it doesn't actually match their skin tone, do yeah. that, like like make her look quote unquote ugly, as, as ugly as you can make <laughs> Blake Lively oh. look. Weird. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to jump over the next section. I'll give you a kind of bullet point. Let me know if you want Mm -hmm. to talk about any of this. But essentially, uh, Stephanie is starting to move in because she's having this relationship with Sean. People are noticing, including Detective Summerhill, who catches her wearing one of Emily's dresses. We learn that Sean has taken out a $4 million life insurance on Emily right before her death. Uh, We also see that... Sean might be hugging his TA Beth, who is played by Melissa O'Neill. And then, yes, uh, Nikki continues to make these references like, Mom seems to be around. Oh, I will say the TA, apparently in a deleted scene, or maybe it wasn't on the Blu-ray, but they mentioned this when they filmed it. The TA is revealed to be his niece. Oh. So, like, she was lying about the threesome the whole time. Right. Which I like less. I actually like that Sean... Mm -hmm doesn't want stephanie to know but i i always imagined it as emily is telling the truth yeah me too it would be weird if it was really another incest thing (laughs) (laughs) cousin a niece fucker (laughs) yeah and she's an uncle fucker (laughs) oh my god (laughs) too much fuckers (laughs) and 
yeah, we're we're smelling Emily's perfume around the house. We're finding her friendship bracelet. And then, of course, the big moment is when we pack up the closet and then Stephanie comes back in with her own stuff and the whole closet is filled back up. So that's the moment where you really know, oh, okay, Emily's obviously not dead. This is a good scary movie moment, though, because, like, we have this, again, we have this French pop music playing, and, like, we're, again, we're kind of primed as an audience to be like, okay, this is a fun little montage, yay, she's clearing out the closet, and then it just cuts off as she gets that scare, and, mm-hmm. th- but we hold to wait to see what she's looking at before we're, it's revealed to us. Right, Yeah. So I do love that we make a reference to a very well-known French film, considering the music, but also the genre that we're working in. <laughs> so I love that uh, after Emily calls, so we have confirmation Emily is definitely still alive. That's when Stephanie confronts Sean and asks if he's trying to diabolique her. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Previous episode, everyone, please go listen to our episode on Diabolique and go watch that remake. Yeah. Yeah. They're both good. Mm-hmm costumes emily if you want to talk about some wild costumes that diabolique remake with sharon stone oh my god (laughs) i haven't seen it it's been on my list and i love sharon stone so much so Mm -hmm. i've added something to my list right now there you go (laughs) so more really speaking to a female experience when Stephanie confronts Sean about this. He basically says, you're acting very crazy. This is probably Ooh. just grief. Why don't you take some Xanax? Yeah, that I, I don't think Sean is a huge piece of shit in this movie. Because mm-hmm. admittedly, by the end, you're like, oh, he also doesn't know what's going on. Half he's just time. stupid. He's yeah. yeah, he's just stupid. <laughs> and rich. Like, I just feel like that's such a rich person thing to say is like, just take some Xanax. It's fine. <laughs> but he's not yeah. rich, though. Like, they're going well, bankrupt. Yes, but he's putting on the air. Sure. Rich, you yes. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's presumably hoping to come into some money in the very near future. And that house, if they could sell it, would be worth a not even small fortune, probably a medium-sized fortune. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's other ways they could have got out of this jam, but, you know, uh, this is a movie. Insurance and... fraud. <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay, so the movie is still doing these occasional flashbacks to offer some additional insight. So Stephanie is reminiscing about the moments after she revealed that, yeah, she did fuck her half-brother. So we go back to her and Emily at a point before Emily died, and we see... Stephanie talking about her husband, Davis, who we've not mentioned is played by Eric Johnson, another Canadian actor. Hmm. And he did question the paternity of their child, Miles. And when Stephanie tells this to Emily, she says, you know, I'm lonely. Like she talked about being scared to date people or she brushes it off with a laugh. But this is a very nice, genuine moment between the two women. And Emily kisses her. And then when there's a moment of panic on Stephanie's face, Emily reassures her and says, we're all good, baby. It's just another Tuesday. You want to get a pizza? (laughs) (laughs) So again, this is something that Paul Feig in the commentary, he's like, people watch this scene and they say, oh, that's really gratuitous. Like, that's like, you don't need that in the film. And again, having this man who has already admitted to being like, I'm a bit of a prude. I don't like having sex in movies. I don't like putting nudity in movies. He's like, no, this to me makes sense. Like, you have 
this kiss because Stephanie won't allow herself to have a relationship and she's admitting this secret that she's held on to her whole life and she just falls into this kiss. Like, it, it's spontaneous and it makes sense for this character. It's not me having a lesbian fetish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, like, as much as we want to give Paul a hard time for being prudish, I think, like, he knows when it serves the story mm-hmm. and right. I, I, I think... That- it's hot, but it, it, it just fits. It just fits. Mm-hmm. It feels natural, even if it wasn't like a... Uh, there's so much queerness in this movie that it feels natural in that way, but I think right. it just kind of feels natural in a, like intimate moment way. I think mm-hmm. even too... Like, I mean, like right before the kiss, we had that moment where she says, I miss him. And she doesn't say them, she says him. And Blake Lively's like, which one? And yeah. Stephanie like has to take a B. And obviously you're kind of like, oh shit, it's the brother. <laughs> it's the brother. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm going to bring back mental queerness because they also have some thoughts about this. So they say it signified deep affection between the two women and alluded to Stephanie's main character flaw, which is that she's incapable of recognizing healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. She perpetually confuses comfort for love and becomes romantically attached to people during periods of intense grief. Yeah. So... In some ways, you know, yeah, maybe it's gratuitous because it's two women kissing, but <laughs> it's symbolic of the deepening friendship between these two. It's also a sign of Stephanie's toxic trait that, you know, she needs to be careful about who she lets in, particularly when she is grieving. But then to me, as part of that larger queer reading, this is that moment of kindness where it's like, we already have this romantic connection. Mm-hmm. I can do this and make you feel less lonely. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder like how much trauma that Emily has too. Mm-hmm. Like there's an there's sort of an illusion at one point in the film to like a dark past. Aside from yeah. some of the uh, things that Emily does. I'm trying not to spoil all of your summary. Oh no, you no, can you're go fine. Ahead. No, you're fine. Jump you're ahead fine. if you want to. But like I feel like do you read sexual abuse into her relationship yeah, with her that's, father? That's well, what I'm wondering. Like, do, did you feel that or do, is that just like me overthinking it? I don't think you're overthinking it. But when we get the, the flashbacks to Hope and Faith when they're 16, you you could read it as, oh, they had the kind of childhood where they were sort of repressed and made to like stay indoors they weren't allowed to be themselves they weren't allowed to go out and socialize like very kind of southern gothic that's how i read it but also you could read it as it's a control factor and the girls were maybe being sexually abused because you don't just kill your fucking father and burn half the house down well and i i think maybe this is also again so i I think yes you can absolutely read that into it all we are shown is physical abuse Um, Mm -hmm. we are not shown sexual abuse and maybe this is another case of paul feig saying well, how much is necessary for the story? Like, do I need mm-hmm. to uh, to show sexual abuse or just imply it uh, to yeah. to to make their their decision to burn down the house and kill their father believable? And maybe his decision was no. However, I don't think he would turn down a reading of they were probably sexually abused by their father. Right. No. I think again, you can make that reading. I think it's there if you care to look for it. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, I I do think like probably both of these women have fucked up relationships to mm-hmm. you know their sexuality and and how they express themselves in the sense that like obviously Emily is using that to mm-hmm. manipulate Stephanie too, right? Well, that's oh, yeah. why they're they're like kindred spirits despite being like from completely like opposite personality types. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think they can both learn something from one another. Emily is so closed off and she starts to recognize, oh, there can be kindness in other people. Particularly, I also don't get the impression that Emily has a lot of female friends. She seems no. to be working in a very male-dominated space where she has to be a bit of an alpha figure. So I think having a female friendship that is, quote-unquote, less competitive for her allows her to embrace some of the, oh, I can have a female friend. We can actually be kind to each other to a certain extent. Right. And then, obviously, Stephanie needs to learn to be more assertive and go after the things that she wants and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Stephanie continues investigating and she tracks down the painter, Diana Hyland, who is played by Linda Cardellini, who always gives me queer energy. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know if she identifies as such. I don't think she is. She does not. <laughs> but- I mean, obviously, she has the Freaks and Geeks connection. Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, there, there's just something very organic, maybe a little granola. I think that's maybe where I get some of the lesbian vibes from her. But uh, yeah, Diana is very, she's been called a knockoff Dyke Maplethorpe, which I thought was like, whoa. (laughs) But it also tells us exactly who she is. Yeah, she's only in like one scene. Like one scene again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like what, what, what a memorable scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although I will say I forgot she was in it. And then I like gasped when I saw her (laughs) again. Uh, Because she does like Velma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Maybe that's it. Oh, maybe that's it. Velma. Maybe it's not the granola. Maybe it's the Velma of it all. But but, I I would also argue, though, her murderess in Legally Blonde has some big queer energy, too, with that part. Oh. Yes. Yes. Legally Blonde was one of the films on the letterbox list. Okay, oh. I, that's weird. I thought everyone loved Louis Blonde all the time. <laughs> okay, I just listened to another podcast, I won't name it, that was talking about Legally Blonde and that they were like kind of surprised at how good it was. Like they were like, what? oh, I heard all these girls what? talking about Legally Blonde after Barbie. And I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna watch it again. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Legally Blonde is, is a masterpiece. Great. It is. <laughs> that, 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 li- okay, literally, like, <laughs> I used to be able to like quote her climactic like like perm chemical monologue verbatim mm-hmm. yeah. because it's that fucking good. <laughs> Ammonium phygloccoline. Yes. Yeah. No, because uh, I'm sorry, I think I said this before, but there's a moment of physical action. But, but, but no, whenever Reese Witherspoon is like, whenever whenever she's like, oh, I, I figured it out. And her body language changes. It's such a great mm-hmm. acting moment from Witherspoon. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yes, continue. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, plug for my other podcast, but if you want to talk about oh, that movie's like smarter than it thinks or blah, 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 like it's not that great, uh, read the book that it's based on because that book is a piece of shit so for them to take garbage as a text Uh, and spin it into absolute cinematic gold that movie is great now the sequel not good no we don't talk about the sequel (laughs) but i will say the the other like the the other one-two punch of sequels of females at the time was miss congeniality miss congeniality Congeniality. yeah i actually do like miss congeniality 2 quite a bit (laughs) it's not better than the first one but i like it I need, I to, need revisit to revisit it. it. I really yeah, do. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about Reese Witherspoon and Lily Blonde, I wonder if like we could have got like another version of this where Anna Ooh. Kendrick was played by Reese Witherspoon <gasps> and oh. Blake Lively was played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. No, Sarah Michelle Gellar! More spit in the kiss? <laughs> I was thinking about literally right before you said Sarah Michelle Gellar, I was thinking in my head, oh my god, Sarah Michelle Gellar. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but it's like Blonde and brunette switch, you know? 
I do think Sarah Michelle Keller would maybe overplay Emily, though. Like, I'm thinking of her cruel intentions, Catherine, and that's well, a fantastic performance, but I worry that she would try to do that again. And Catherine is too arch. Like, Emily needs to play it softer. I think it depends on the director, though, because I, th- I, th- I think, and of course, I'm just, I'm just like speculating here. Mm-hmm. I think in Feig's hands, he would help her tone that down. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could. I do think Reese could actually do the Emily part, too. Like, I think she has it in her. That's where I thought you were going. Yeah. Yeah, Well, uh, Reese has more going on. Like, I know we we pigeonhole her into the, like, sort of uh, Hello Mm. Sunshine world that she's in now. Yes. But freeway that's a fucked up movie freeway um i'm sorry y'all need to start watching the morning show where she's getting fingered in the back of a taxi cab by juliana margulies excuse me (laughs) not even kidding she gets fingered in the back of a taxi cab by juliana margulies because oh in in the morning show she's a closeted bisexual what okay why isn't this being that has not been disclosed where was that in the marketing it it doesn't come into play until season two like the Uh, season two plot point but very much like she's a closeted bisexual. It's from like a really like hick religious town, and that's her. Oh. That's one of her arcs in season two. Okay, well, okay. New idea is, and this is, I don't <laughs> oh. know why it comes back to cruel intentions, but uh, uh-huh. Selma Blair as the Anna Kendrick part, and then Reese Witherspoon mm. as the uh, Blake Lively part. That's what sure. I'm I would. I would I, you, honestly just give us a cruel intentions legacy sequel. <laughs> I we've been wanting it. It's been sort of made and then not broadcast. You know, like let's oh, just make it happen. That. We've seen it. We've seen yeah. it. So you you can find that pilot on certain channels of the internet <laughs> yes i know i know but it's not a, it's not official so no yeah it is interesting and we're seeking out though yeah maybe it's that that movie has like a similar tone to this movie where it's like uh, kind of gay but it's like over the top and then it's like sexual yes. and like there's a lot of different twists and turns and it's true kind of it you is know? an erotic thriller for sure for sure uh-huh. yeah. just four teenagers right yeah 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 Anyway, sorry. I, I, this is not about cruel intentions. I don't know why I made it about cruel no. intentions. Because we welcome the comparison. Why did why. I say sorry? I'm too sexy to say sorry. Emily, don't make me slap the apology out of your mouth. We so rarely get to talk about movies like this on the podcast. So, like, it's honestly, true. like, I will. We we relish it when we can. Well, okay, it is good. one of the reasons why we programmed this movie. Like, we right. we looked at the list and we said, okay, there's probably a dozen queer erotic thrillers that we could go after. And this was the wild card pick. But we wanted to do it principally because a lot of the erotic thrillers are either super transphobic, very mm-hmm. gay, but not like it's not gay women. It's like gay men. So it's like, okay, that's interesting. But also we need to talk about women. And to be clear, last week was a transphobic one. We do have a gay one coming up. And we also, mm-hmm. well, well, stay well, tuned for next week. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so we're still with Diana. We're learning more about Emily. She used to go by Claudia. I love that Diana says she was not a normal person. And I'm just like, wow, that is a criticism that has been labeled at every queer person ever okay but 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 the jo- the joke of this line is as she's chugging her drink mm-hmm. she is not a normal person like you or me <laughs> <laughs> we are all well-balanced women <laughs> okay so this leads stephanie down the garden path to religious summer camp sparrow lake this is where she discovers the picture of both hope and faith so we are dealing with twins here we go 
We're going to go visit mom, Margaret, who is played by Jean Smart. Oh, my God. Okay, so I will tell you all. So the the three commentaries this movie, one is just Paul Feig. One is Paul Feig and like the costume design of the writer and everything. The mm-hmm. other one is Paul Feig and Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. But then 30 minutes into the commentary, Gene Smart and the guy that plays the cop walk in. What? And I, they just walk in. And that sounds like a joke at a bar. Like 30 minutes into the commentary, Gene Smart rocks. In. Well, here, here's the thing. Normally when you have somebody, because the Deep Blue Sea commentary, uh, Samuel Jackson like pieces out after his character dies. Like he's like, I don't so know. So rude. About this. Stick around. Come so on. you're kind of like, okay, I guess Gene Smart's going to talk about her scene and go. But no, she like just seen the movie, like the final cut the night before. And she just sticks around and talks about the movie and is like asking Blake Lively and to hit her questions. It's like very endearing. So oh. really fun to listen to Gene Smart. Just be like, oh my God, I love this. Like, this is so good. Y'all are so good here. <laughs> oh, I love Gene Smart. Hacks forever. Oh, I hacks love forever. Show. Honestly, queers, if you are not watching Hacks, that show is tailor made for us. It is so fucking queer and so clever. So good. So funny. And Gene Smart, I mean, like, I think she, I think she won at least one yes. Emmy for it and she deserved it. Oh, yeah. So good. Oh, yeah. Talk about bisexual <laughs> energy. That is mm-hmm. bisexual energy, the show. Yeah. yeah. So... Margaret is uh, not the most welcoming and receptive of hosts. She's a bit of a recluse. She's more than a little bit of a drunk, and she doesn't seem to have a lot of affection for her daughters. But it is interesting to me that we eventually learn that Emily was the good twin. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're seeing is uh, the best behavior of the two. <laughs> and to be clear, we, we haven't seen Faith yet. We don't know. No. I'm sorry. We've seen a picture of Faith, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she does say that Faith was born rotten and then declares that the two of them burnt down the West Wing and it was arson. It was definitely not an accident and that this did end up killing their father. Also, her best line delivery is when she's like, are you a mother? And Kendrick's like, yes, and I love every minute of it. Oh, but then you must have brain damage. (laughs) (laughs) So mean. (laughs) Yeah, this movie does love a bad mom, doesn't it? It really does. (laughs) So uh, Stephanie ends up relaying all of this new and exciting information onto her vlog. But of course, she's doing this in part because she knows that Emily is still alive because she's called her and little Nikki has confirmed it as such. So we then cut to Emily watching in the dingiest of motels and she is not happy. She does call Stephanie a crazy fucking brother fucker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Joe, I'm a little surprised you, I mean, I know we don't have to like spend time on it, but like we get a Mm -hmm. microfiche sequence in this movie. We do indeed. God, I love a microfiche. You should be very happy. In one of the behind the scenes featurettes, Anna Kendrick, they show her filming this scene and she's like, oh my God, I've always wanted to do this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as I said, I can definitely understand why some people might watch this and say, oh God. Even here, right? Like she's she's driving home and she's singing along to MOP's Anti Up, and <laughs> it feels like this could be a cutscene from a Pitch Perfect movie where it's sure Anna Kendrick, you know, doing her singy thing. And I can't entirely disagree with that, but I also think that you're not giving her enough credit for understanding exactly what this character needs to be because if Stephanie isn't like this, then the movie falls apart. Yeah, but I, I I also think that this scene, I mean, okay, maybe it's funny because it's like, oh, a white girl singing rap, but it's really mm-hmm. funny. <laughs> 
Well, it's funny because Stephanie is the kind of character where you wouldn't assume she would listen to something like that because she is straight lace and repressed. Mm -hmm. And this is her really opening up and doing something outside of her conventional stereotypical box. I'm curious, do y'all have like a favorite Anna Kendrick performance that's that falls outside of the quote unquote typical Anna Kendrick wheelhouse? Um, my favorite Anna Kendrick role and the first movie I saw her in was the movie Camp. Have you guys seen that? Oh, movie? Well, that, that, that's, that's her first one. movie ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's kind of like, she's kind of evil in that movie. She like robs a role from uh, another mm. actress. But I, I think she's so great in that. And I like have always wanted her to reach that level of performance again. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she's always sort of pigeonholed into these roles where she is playing this like quirky kind of character, which is why I think I maybe like her in this one because I feel like it's it's giving her a chance to sort of do a twist on that. Right. I'm also really interested in the fact that like she's directing a movie now. Oh, is she? It's coming to TIFF actually, and it's called Woman of the Hour, and it's based on that story of that guy who was on the dating game who was a was a serial killer. You know that story. Mm Hmm. Yeah, and so I feel like this movie maybe, like, was a start for her to be like, I'm going to explore this, like, darker, like, interesting side of myself. Right. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the film, but I really wanted to catch it. So there's a movie that came out last year called Alice Darling, yeah. where she plays a woman who's in an abusive, like, codependent relationship. And it's basically her going away on a girl's weekend and not telling them that that's what's happening. And they're just like, you're acting so weird. And why is this guy showing up looking for you? And apparently her her performance is really, really strong. Like, people were actually mentioning it as a potential awards contender. But I actually do want to see that because that, that was one of the first things I pulled up when I asked you all that question. Um, I will oh, say so it was a leading question is what you're saying. It was a leading question. Um, <laughs> no, but I will say so the reason Paul Feig catched this movie is because he loved her in the, the cancer comedy 50-50. Oh. With uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Seth Rogen. I will say uh, this is one of her earlier like this is what kind of got her noticed with critical circles. Um, up in, up the, in air. the air. Yeah, yeah. She's really good in that. Yes. I would say that is kind of her prototype, though. Like, that's very similar to Pitch Perfect and even this. But I don't don't think it's it's not goofy like she can be in those movies. Like, it's a more muted version of that. Um, Like, toned down, I guess I would say. But um, I also, like, I don't think it's a great adaptation, but I do think she is good in the last five years. The musical about the breakup. Mm. Yes. Mm -hmm. I actually really like that, but I also like the musical. Yeah, I just, I think it's maybe not like the best adaptation of that musical, but I, no. maybe it's like the best thing it probably could be given, given what it the is. premise. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I will say, just as a side note, I did see Alice Darling. She is oh. good in it. Okay. But I don't love the movie, but oh. I think, I think. It's a movie that, like, maybe is necessary, you know, for some people to see and maybe could, like, open some eyes to people that, like, don't know what kind of relationship they're in. So I I think it's cool that she made that, but she still Mm -hmm. is playing kind of like a a meek character, but she gets kind kind of a different challenge. I don't know. I would just love to see her do something, like, totally out there. Like, I don't know exactly what, but, like, just Mm -hmm. like a... Like a badass, like, I don't know. So the role, okay, I'm sorry, this is my last thing before we can move on. But like, uh, Joe, I have talked about this before on our Patreon mini-sode on like most upsetting like horror movie deaths. 
Right. There's a movie with Ryan Reynolds called The Voices, where he is a serial oh, killer. Yeah. That yes! He, and she plays, like, the girl he kind of falls in love with, but he accidentally kills her and it is Mm -hmm. one of the most upsetting death scenes i have ever seen in a film because like she falls back on a bed and breaks her neck but she doesn't die immediately and so she keeps talking as she slowly dies and it's but it's a horror comedy but like Mm -hmm. it's it's really effective so i would recommend that too that's a great movie i am dying to screen that for my screening series because it's directed by a woman yep and It's just a great movie. It's just, a, it's, it's like similar to this one. It's like very brightly colored, but it is like dark, dark. as hell. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, fun fact the woman that directed it is known for um, working on and creating Persepolis, the graphic novel that became a feature film adaptation. Oh, yes. right. And she did the film adaptation. Hmm. But yeah. anyway. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so back to the film. We actually leave Stephanie behind so that we can see a scene between Emily and Sean. They go to the restaurant where they always go for their anniversary. This is where we learn that Sean did not know any of this, and it's because he's bad at keeping secrets. But I will say one of the things that I really like about this scene, it feels a little superfluous, which is fine, but... I enjoyed that we get a bit of a motivation of, you know, like, okay, why did you have to do all of this? Why do we need the money? Mm -hmm. Because so much of this, you think that it's about Emily just being kind of an asshole. And she is that. But then she reveals she wanted to do this in part for Nikki, and she couldn't stay away from him because she really does love that little dude. And I think that this is an interesting moment where even if she's not a great mom, she's still a mom who loves her son, and she wants to offer him some kind of financial stability. And I thought that that was an interesting complication for a character that we thought we knew most everything about at this point in the film. That's because it's not so easy to just call her. Like She is the villain of the film, but like also it's kind of like, I kind of get it. But I also think this scene is important important to cement the fact that Sean is technically a good guy in this film. And Mm -hmm. we, we never really learn when Stephanie figures that out because there are a couple scenes moving forward where it's like, wait, does she know? Like, yes, does she trust him or not? (laughs) But that to me is, I don't know. Cause I feel like I saw a lot of reviews this time where they're like, Oh, the movie kind of loses itself in the third act where it's trying to keep to one up, you one up, you one up you. And to me, this scene is an example of the movie trying not to one up you by showing its cards. Right. This definitely still works for me. I will confess. I am one of those people who feels like the third act of the film is the weakest. And it's maybe just because we are doing double cross and that kind of stuff. Like the movie definitely gets back there at the end, but Mm -hmm. this is the start of where it gets a little wobbly for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, yes, she, she does end up recording him say that he doesn't actually care that much about Stephanie, that he is just like fucking her or whatever. And then she does her usual her or me ultimatum, which we already heard <laughs> when they were coming back from stealing his mom's ring and they joined the Mile High Club. So unrealistic. <laughs> um, side note, the mom's ring apparently was inspired by Princess Diana's ring. Oh. oh, isn't that odd? And apparently, like, I think Kate Middleton has the ring now that it was inspired by. So right. I I don't know how to read into that. But, you know, <laughs> fucked up things. The royal family, I believe, yeah. you know, there's some layers there. Yeah. Brother fucking. I'm sure it's happening. You oh, know? <laughs> you went there. <laughs> 
Okay, so we then are introduced to insurance agent Isabel Prager, who is played by Fargo's Olivia Sandoval, and this is really the the fruition or the maturation of Stephanie moving into her Emily channeling role, where she is kind of glib but playing stupid with this woman like oh what is happening oh i didn't know about the insurance oh that's so weird sean uh, i love this well because she's always like you knew that she had a twin did i why didn't you <laughs> <laughs> it is wild that emily managed to keep that from him i mean She's kept a secret from everyone. Like, I mean, honestly, because she's still kind of an enigma by the end of this film. And the fact that I'm like, how did no one know about any of this? Even her work life, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely does seem as though Emily compartmentalized what she would reveal to other people about herself. But yeah. it also kind of feels like at one point she just divorced herself from her upbringing and said, that part of me is dead. So I'm just going to now tell people, orphan, family dead. Mm -hmm. This is my new life story. <laughs> so just in case you didn't appreciate Sean's line to Stephanie earlier in the film, she does throw it back in his face and says that uh, he needs to take a Xanax or two because he's acting crazy, which I appreciated. <laughs> so this is where Emily re-enters the film proper. So obviously we had the scene with her and Sean, but then we finally get our two girls back together at the gravesite. So Stephanie baits Emily for martinis and discussion. Emily tries to talk her way around things, but Stephanie isn't having any of it. So yeah, we get the backstory about the twins where they hit the reset button by committing arson and then fleeing the scene. Emily went to New York. Uh, Faith was supposed to meet up with her, but never did. And then they reconvene 14 years later at the camp, which is where Emily kills her sister so that she has a body that she can use to fake her death. But to be clear, Faith does blackmail her to say, hey, you're rich now. Give me a million dollars and I'll get out of your life because I'm a drug addict. <laughs> this is true. Um, I think this is a really good acting moment from Lively. Um, so when she drowns her, she mm -hmm. has that moment where she like, hugs the body yes i just think that's very touching yes yeah yeah and also just just her playing the other sister yeah is like really really good like i also it gave me a moment of like oh blake lively can go there why don't yeah. we let her go there yeah. And that's, I like, I, I like seeing it. I remember, um, oh, I think the, the first, like, legit acting role she had, you know, like, outside of Gossip Girl, outside of Sister of the Time of Pants, it was when she was the, um, the, the girlfriend in the town, the Ben Affleck movie. Oh, All yeah. Right. And that was, people were like, oh, my God, you know, she could do that. It's like, yeah, she has the range. Mm-hmm. She's not just a pretty face, guys. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing, right? It's so easy to write off particularly female actors when they look pretty because we just want to see them do pretty things, which amusingly enough, we say the same about Disney starlets. And mm -hmm. then when they try to rebel and do dark things, then we say, oh, they're acting out and they're being difficult and they're being trashy hoes. And I really do feel like this film has a lot of commentary about what it means to be a quote-unquote good girl versus a quote-unquote bad girl. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a gray area. Why can't you be both a good girl? Why can't and a you bad be both? Yeah. Also, why is it bad to be bad? Why is it good to be good? Also, like I bet her I think her and Ryan Reynolds are like the cutest couple in the world. Like they're oh, so they're endearing. <laughs> Their house must be so fucking funny. 
Okay, but were they not married on a plantation? I feel like this is something. Yes? Yes. Uh, I think there was that. So. And also, I'm pretty sure he was dating Alanis Morissette when he and Blake Lively got together. But Yeah, there was... Okay, yes, yes, yes. But <laughs> never... The, it can't all look, be good, people. Look, we've all made mistakes. We've all hurt people in our lives. No, let, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Really? Bible verses? Okay. <laughs> You know what? There's a Bible camp in this movie. It it makes sense. Nevertheless, they seem like they're all fine now. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I... I have a tendency to keep an eye on particularly celebrity couples because we all love to gossip about them. But... I like it when couples then stay together. Like, I guess if you're going to cheat, at least then make it for a longevity reason. That sounds awful. Or or just modernize and just get... I mean, if both of you want to cheat, just open open up up your marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Get in on that swingers action, baby. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so... This is where Emily tells Stephanie that it was Sean's plan. So we set about framing Sean. We hack his email. The police start to search and look for him. This is when, yes, we're asking, hey, how long have you known that Emily was alive? And why didn't you report it when you first found out? Sean's a big old dum-dum. Yeah. But uh, he is also trying to win Stephanie back, even though she refuses to let him in the house. This is where Emily does a slow motion self-harm with a wrench so that she can really put Sean away for more or less domestic abuse. This is kind of great, though. <laughs> it's awful, but it's highly entertaining to watch. It very Because I think it's like playing... A, again, we're, we're, we're juxtaposing like tones here where she's doing self-harm, but then we have this happy song playing over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a good shot. I I like it. It's kind of like beautiful. And then, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Beat it's yourself not every up, day girl. we get to see the point of view shot of a wrench falling towards a <laughs> no. beautiful woman's face. <laughs> We're complicit. That's what it is. <laughs> Honestly. I mean, this movie is very much about watching, too. That's the other thing yeah. we should note about erotic thrillers. Mm. It is about people being seen and seeing others, particularly through mediated, like, visuals, right? So the fact that the whole climax of this movie hinges on being videotaped via nanny cam, very erotic thriller. Yeah. Yes. Even the house, like, being having those big windows and everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I, I, Joe, I mean, I think you would know this the best, but like erotic thrillers are kind of like a treasure trove of house porn, right? Often, yeah. But it, it intersects with what Emily's talking about where, you know, you want to have big open houses because it's about wealth and opulence. Like the erotic thrillers, they reach their height in the 80s when it's like, it's good to be rich, but also we hate rich people. So we want to see them fail and cheat and do mm. horrible things to each other. But then... In order to see them, we need things like giant windows and big open spaces. So the fact that we see, I think Anna Kendrick, like we see Stephanie in the window being watched several times in this film, getting very erotic thriller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's time for some showdown climax here. So Sean gets out of jail. And Emily is waiting for some mommy-daddy time, and Stephanie shows up with a gun, and we go at it. We are just ripping each other apart. Everybody's being super nasty. I love the line, she's not as sweet as her snatch, is she? Ooh, boy. (laughs) 
You would know, Emily. <laughs> yeah, Emily, you uh, you sound a little jealous if we're being honest. That's how you grieve balls deep in my best friend. <laughs> but, 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 but that again, that's a good character beat because she actually is upset by the fact that they fucked. And that it's her best friend, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That took me aback calling her the best friend because I was like, I was like, I didn't think she cared that much about her. But she did. But even yeah. Sean's like, you used to watch her vlog and make fun of her. But it's like, no, she actually did. When you got to know her. Yeah. 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 So we, we go through this whole performance where Stephanie fake shoots Sean and Emily does not fall for it. I love the fact that she calls him a yeast infection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but to me, Emily's reaction is not just, oh, I don't actually care about Sean because I hate that he effectively ruined my life by making me move to the suburbs and invest in this money pit. She feels most betrayed by Stephanie. Like, she is the one yeah. that she wants to take her anger out on or that she she wants to make up with the most right like that's why we have the whole conversation about oh you really are my best friend oh i didn't know if it was one-sided i wasn't sure if i was misreading it like it's cute it's funny because of the dire circumstances but also to me that's why this film is so queer because these two women are so much more interested in each other mm -hmm. than the money than sean even than their own fucking kids their friendship in air quotes is the most important part which i'll put a pin in this but i think that's gonna play a very important part in the sequel for this film Ooh. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, that's the thing is like, I, I hate even calling Emily the villain of this film, but she's de mm -hmm. the de facto villain. But I'm just so fascinated by by that relationship. And it's why it's kind of like, I, I get where it's like, the middle chunk of this film might not be as exciting because we, we are missing that energy that Blake Lively gives this movie and the mm -hmm. energy that the friendship between them, the banter between them has. Because I do think the best parts of this movie are when Kendrick and Lively are in the same scene. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, we should also note that during this confrontation or this exchange of words, Stephanie does say that she loved Emily. So I'm going to bring in mental mm. queerness one last time. They say... Those three words validate Emily's and Stephanie's relationship. It legitimizes their sexual compatibility and is integral to the plot. Without this deep affection, Stephanie wouldn't have been fueled by grief to fall in love with Emily's husband or solve the mystery of her disappearance. Because that is the other thing. It's like the movie opens with, oh, my best friend Emily has been missing for five days. And then she literally uproots her entire life. She leaves her child with other people so that she can go on this mystery hunt to find Emily or solve her murder because she is in love with Emily. Yeah. Mm hmm. And her son. But yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it kind of makes me just briefly, it kind of makes me think of like Gone Girl where like it's like, yeah, should should Nick keep looking for Amy when like he was kind of out of love with her? But then at the end, yeah. you're like, is he kind of is he kind of into it? You know, like it's. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucked up, but it's also sort of true to what real relationships are like. Yeah. Relationships are work, y'all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you got to throw a body in a lake. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. And absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she only got to know her so much and she's like, I'm I'm kind of desperate to know more. Is she like actually dead? If she's not, I, I'm I'm still interested, you know? hundred mm-hmm. percent. It does read as that I didn't realize that I was going to have a same sex attraction to someone. And it was however long a time period that the two women were drinking martinis mm-hmm. and hanging out. And then all of a sudden that's gone and you can't let it go. So you're like, I have to find any little excuse to keep this person alive in my life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Including fucking her husband. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this has all been confessed to on Nanny Cam. This is when Emily runs outside. She gets run over by Darren and his hybrid. And then when he tries to boast, she punches him in the dick and the cops arrive. (laughs) And then I think even if you're on the fence about Anna Kendrick's performance in this film, her doing the oh, Emily, no, I'm just really concerned about your knees. Oh, stop. It just looks so painful. (laughs) (laughs) There was just something so funny about, like, again, like, like how determined Emily, she's just still crawling away as the cops Mm -hmm. are, like, right behind her. (laughs) Yeah. Bitch, you're not getting away. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) So we get this kind of coda at the end. Uh, Stephanie has hit 1 million subscribers on her blog, and it's been sold to Condé Nast. She's now solving mysteries. Sean has published a second novel called The Oopsie Jar. He's teaching at UC Berkeley. That to me is such the throwaway. I don't fucking care about Sean. And I I don't want to oh. know that he ended up succeeding after all this. Just, just wait. Like, whatever. Just wait. F- finish this and I'll, I'll tell you what we could have had. Okay. And then the final sequence is seeing Emily serving 20 years for the murder of her father and sister, as well as trying to do this, you know, insurance fraud. And she is killing the basketball game in the prison yard. And I'm not saying that women's basketball is necessarily super queer, (laughs) but it's also not super queer. Yeah, she's real butched up in this scene. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's it's an orange is the new black sort of (laughs) moment. (laughs) absolutely okay so this is not the original there were two other endings before we had this one and one of them is on the blu-ray one of them is not and i think there's a reason one of them is not but the um Mm. so the one that is on the blu-ray we don't get like the title card saying this is what happened to everybody it's stephanie in school and andrew reynolds walks up to her and is like oh my god there's a a dead body in the playground and they walk out and it's sean and he stands up and him and all the kids in the school do a flash mob Oh. That includes Gene Smart's character, which doesn't make any sense. Wait, but it's, what? It's, it's really funny, though, because when they reveal her, like, drinking a flask while she's in this flash mob, like, Anna Kendrick has this reaction, like, what the fuck are you doing here? Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but, but, but then it ends with him proposing to Stephanie. No. Ew. I know. No. Exactly. Exactly. So that's on the Blu-ray. I will say, I love a good musical number. The problem sure. is, like, the song is, like, four minutes long. And so they do oh, a Lord. flash mob what? for the entire four minutes. Um, also, tell me it's 2018 without telling me it's 2018. <laughs> well, and what's what's cringe funny about it is there's two kids that look at it and they go, this is so 2010. <laughs> oh, no. So that wouldn't have worked. Um, The other ending that is not on the Blu-ray that Paul Feig does talk about on the commentary involves Anna Kendrick, Stephanie, going to see Emily in prison and... Because, you know, we have, like, she's doing, like, a detective agency thing. Mm -hmm. Emily is her Hannibal Lecter helping her solve these crimes. 
Okay, I like uh, that personally. So here's the thing. They tested both of these screenings with audiences. And as Paul Feig puts it, the audience Anna Kendrick was so good in this role, the audience liked Stephanie so much. They okay. didn't want her to A, be reduced to, oh, she gets the man, or she's still friends with the villain of the movie. So they wanted to give her an ending where she was standing alone solo. But sure. I mean, I think that's misreading how i mean trace you said numerous times that emily is the villain of the film Mm -hmm. i think in terms of de facto if we need to put labels on it i would actually say she's more the antagonist than the villain Mm -hmm. even though yeah she is doing villainous things and she is kind of the mastermind behind everything but i think the movie makes us like emily too much to actually have her be a villain so here's the thing and i don't know if this is this is why as we said, in May of last year, 2022, uh, a sequel was announced. Feig is returning to direct the film. Kendrick and Lively are set to reprise their roles. Lionsgate will co-produce the film with Amazon Studios. Okay. I think the jumping off point for this sequel will be her going to see Emily in prison, being the Hannibal Lecter, helping her solve crimes. And that's going to be the jumping off point for this movie. Seems reasonable. And I... We haven't had an update on this since they announced it last year, and I'm really worried that it's going to, like, not happen. But I want this to happen so fucking bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to see it. I recently really got into the movie Manhunter, um, and I Mm. just love the the queer dynamic. Well, obviously, Mm -hmm. there's a Hannibal series, too. Yeah. Between Will Graham and, and Hannibal, and I would just love yep. to see, like, a female version of that. hundred – and again, talking about uh, if Paul Feig is playing in his, like, Hitchcockian thriller genre in this film, cool. Mm-hmm. Do Silence of the Lambs of the next one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, my God. He could do it. I mean, like, I think him doing, like, parodies is kind of, like, the way that he's he's gone, you know, with the heat and, and spy and everything. So, I, I think he could do it, and I, I want to see it. Paul, let's do it. Let's go. I think there's also a way where he could tackle the transphobic legacy of Silence of the Lambs Mm. and repurpose it in in the sequel. Maybe. I don't know. It could be interesting. I just, I do hope that it gets made. I think it would be interesting, like, this rewatch. Like, I'm glad you guys, you know, made me rewatch it because I I have (laughs) a new appreciation for it. Like, I kind of felt like I was, like, mad and I was like, how am I going to feel? I I was, like, worried that I was going to come to this and be, like, so, like, negative. I still don't like it. You still don't like it? (laughs) No, I'm I'm saying, (laughs) wouldn't it be bad if you come to the recording? I mean, here's the thing. We've had people come on and say, so... I hope you don't expect me to come on here and talk highly about a film. Like, Mm -hmm. all opinions are always welcome, but it is one of those things where I think sometimes people feel uncomfortable having to publicly admit, oh, I'm here to talk about a movie for up to two hours. I don't like this movie. Sometimes that's not a great position to be put in, so. Yeah. We've both been in that position, too, by the way. (laughs) Well, it's also like... I was just worried about feeling meh about it because I think if you like right. like a movie or hate a movie, it's easy to talk about it. But right. when you yes. feel meh about it, it's like not as easy to talk about it. So I was yeah. like, oh, I don't want to feel meh about it. So I, <laughs> I really feel good about it. And I would like to see the sequel. And, I, I you know, I don't love it going to streaming. Like, I would like it to go to theaters. I always want to see stuff yeah. made yeah. by women or sort about women go to theaters. And I think with Barbie, like, we're going to maybe see more of that. But Hopefully. I do think it'll find its audience on streaming Mm -hmm. in that same way that i was like i think that this original movie would have done well like on vhs and stuff i I just Mm -hmm. think 
it'll find its audience no matter what because it doesn't yeah. need the cinematic experience. I just want it to succeed, I guess, is what I mean. Yes. And money is a barometer of success, which is something we don't often get with streaming services. They don't tell us how well things actually do. Yeah. But like what I was saying, there's like this movie seems to have found, I mean, I'm reluctant to call this a cult film now because it's only been five years. But I do think it's found a a cult following people are like, no, this is like a genuinely like good movie. It's surprising. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It's whatever. So I think it's kind of a thing where I'm like, maybe the longer it takes for the sequel to come out and I'm putting a max on two years. God, do not take more than two years for this movie to come out. But I think it's going to keep the the audience is going to keep building for it. Right. So the fact that it's very publicly accessible doesn't hurt. Like you can find this movie pretty easily. And that's usually a good sign of success because when I mean, obviously, cult films get made when they become hard to find, but not, I would say, in contemporary examples. It's usually films that we undervalue when they first come out. And then the legacy grows when we can actually sample it. Yeah. Mm hmm. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> I think that is a simple favor. Um, before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Emily, thank you so much for coming on to this and for talking about this and for giving another chance too. let everyone know where can they find you on social media? Yeah, I mean, who knows where social media will be whenever <laughs> yep. this comes out. <laughs> but I am currently on Twitter slash X at Emily Gagne, that's E-M-I-L-Y-G-A-G-N-E. Um, I'm on uh, Instagram. Lady Gagne is my handle there. <laughs> and uh, you can find me on Dread Central. I, I write Final Girl Fashion. Ooh. Um, and then uh, we really like her. Just just Google it. We have screenings uh, every month at the review. And actually, our next screening is in October, October 19th. Uh, that's 2023. And we're doing The Slumber Party Massacre, the original. And nice. we're doing it on 35 millimeter and it's just going to be a blast. Ooh. And I want everyone to come in their PJs and just have like a gal pal night. So um, please come to that. That's that's it for me. How do we know she is alive? <laughs> that's House of Sorority Row, bitch. <laughs> What's your point? Oh, God. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horrorqueers or shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers and tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. And if you love us and want to tell us, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But if you want to show us your love with money, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you'll get about 261 hours of Patreon content, including this month's new episodes on Shudder's Birth Rebirth, A Haunting in Venice, the next installment in Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Poirot series. God damn it, I'm going to fuck that thing up every time. Just call it A Haunting in Venice and move on. People, the people have a right to know. Shut up. Um, The Nun 2, as well as uh, two, not one, but two audio commentaries, one on Underworld to celebrate its 20th anniversary, and one on Saw 2 to coincide with the release of Saw 10. Um, Oh, shit. We will also have an episode on The Voyeurs to coincide with this month's main feed theme of erotic thrillers. Voyeurs, check it out. Um, Shockingly entertaining. (laughs) It's messy and weird. Yeah. Yeah, messy and weird. Great way to describe it. Uh, but Joe. <laughs> yes. Oh my god, we've got a juggernaut of queer cinema next week. Uh, what are we talking about? 
Look, I said we needed to talk about the ladies, so we're going to talk about four of them when we talk about a little bit of Bounds. We got Jennifer Tilly, we got Gina Gershon, and then we got those badass Wachowski sisters. Mm. This is a movie that I saw, I watched in high school after hearing about how good it was. And, it, you know, you're like, oh, it's never going to live up to it. It can't be that good. Um, it is. It is. This is a five-star film for me. I fucking love this movie. It's so goddamn good. And for me, the the king of I don't like noirs that much, that's saying something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll save something for next week. Sure, sure, sure. All right. But until next week, we can cross out a simple favor. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Bye, moms. Mm-hmm.